0: Before I hand it over to the next inductee, I'd be remiss if I did not talk about Tommy John. I've been given an opportunity as one of the only players, the only one right now, to be inducted in the Hall of Fame with Tommy John surgery. It's an epidemic. It's something that is affecting our game. It's something that I thought would cost me my career, but thanks to Dr. James Andrews and all those before him, performing the surgery with such precision has caused it to be almost a false read like a Band-Aid you put on your arm. Touchdown, Alabama
1: wins!
2: Jack Nicholas wins his sixth Masters, his 20th major championship at the age of 46, four years
0: older than anyone ever has been as a champion of the Masters.
2: This is the Victory Over Injury podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. Here is Dr. Michael Ryan. Hello, pros and joes, jocks and docs, athletic trainers, therapists, coaches, and
1: fans. Welcome to the Victory Over Injury podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center in beautiful Birmingham, Alabama. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. This is a podcast for athletes, competitors, athletic trainers therapists, fans, sports enthusiasts, and anyone interested in learning more about the legends who have been vitally influential in the world of sports medicine, rehabilitation, athletic training, mental preparation, athletics, and more. We are going to peel back the layers of sports injuries from multiple perspectives to gain a greater understanding of what actually goes on in the minds of athletes, athletic trainers, physicians, surgeons, therapists, coaches, and more in the face of injury. And whether or not you are an elite athlete, recreational participant, passionate fan, or occasional observer, we hope to bring you into our world to understand what it takes to achieve victory over injury. On this episode of the Victory Over Injury podcast, we have an exceptional and uniquely talented individual, one who possesses perhaps the greatest tools needed to overcome adversity, injury, self-doubt, and insecurity, and his passion is facilitating the optimal mindset to win, to win the day, the game, the recovery, and this game we call life. Dr. Brett McCabe is a licensed clinical psychologist with a PhD in clinical psychology from Louisiana State University with an emphasis in behavioral medicine with additional training in clinical psychology from Brown University Medical School. As a former division one four-year letterman and two-time national champion baseball player at LSU, Dr. McCabe has combined his championship athletic background with his education in behavioral medicine to create the mind side. A sports and performance consulting practice for athletes, coaches, entrepreneurs, business leaders, and high-performing individuals based out of Birmingham, Alabama. Through his practice, Dr. McCabe works with numerous professional and collegiate athletes in the NFL, NBA, MMA, PGA, and LPGA. And he serves as a sports and performance psychologist for the University of Alabama Athletic Department, including the 2016, 2018, and 2020 National Championship Alabama football teams. In addition, his advice and experience is sought by numerous national companies, including State Farm, Bristol-Myers Squibb, New York Life, and Cates Bank, among others as a means of optimizing the performance of its employees. He's been a regular featured speaker at the National PGA Teaching and Coaching Summit and Titles Performance Institute. Dr. McCabe is a published author of The Mindside Manifesto, The Urgency to Create a Competitive Mindset, as well as The Game Plan Workbook, which he developed in order to help athletes, coaches, and leaders compete to the best of their ability. Dr. McCabe also hosts The Secrets to Winning, a weekly podcast that explores the mindset of world-class athletes, coaches, and brilliant business minds. No doubt I've accidentally omitted many other accolades, but from my personal experience, I know Dr. McCabe to be an exceptional speaker, pragmatic performance guide, and an outstanding motivator. Without further ado and pleasure, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Brett McCabe. Cool. Thanks for
0: having me. That's awesome. I kind of like to start off
1: getting an understanding of of where they're from, how they grew up, what their home life was like, and what they were like as
0: a kid. So can you give us a little bit of insight into how you grew up and where you're from? Yeah. So I'm an only child. My dad was a C-130 navigator in the Air Force and was actually a pharmacist, played baseball at University of Toledo. And this was 1961, 62, and realized that the draft was coming. And he thought, you know what? I don't want to be drafted. I'd rather go in my own way. So he went into the Air Force. At the time, he was accepted to go to med school in a couple places he got, and his family couldn't afford it. His dad was a carpenter in Cleveland and he couldn't afford med school. So that's why he went into pharmacy. He looked at it and he said, You know, back in the old days, you had the local pharmacist. They called him Doc. It was the, you know, nobody could get to the doctor. So you go to the local pharmacist and he loved the science and the chemistry of things. And so he went into the military as a hospital administrator and was sitting in a basement in Turkey and was like, this sucks. So he reclassified and became a navigator. He was too tall to fly um, as a pilot. So he was able to do a navigator. And so he did that and he didn't get married till he was 33. So he spent several terms in the Vietnam Love doing that, doing what they call blind bats, would fly at night, low altitude over the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and he would set the targets wow. for the fighter jets. Wow. And then they would move troops around. So my dad was kind of the ultimate bachelor in the, in the military, met my mom. My mom was a model from Nashville, grew up in a rural small town in Tennessee, and met my dad in California. They got married when he came back, and then I was born when he was probably 32 or 33. So he'd already had 10 years in the military. But we moved around a lot. I was born in Sacramento, moved to Miami, moved to San Antonio, then lived two years in the Philippines, then Little Rock. And when we spent some time in Little Rock, he retired from outside of St. Louis in Belleville, Illinois. So we always traveled. And I was an only child. My parents couldn't have kids. I was kind of a surprise kid. I, my um, my dad had, uh, I guess it was mumps when he was a kid. So they thought he was gonna be sterile and unable to have kids. And, and I was born and I was lucky. And they tried and tried and tried for years. They could never have any more kids. Wow. And so We'd travel and we'd go around and I'd play youth baseball on the bases or youth sports. And he retired from the military at Scott in outside of Belleville, Illinois, outside of St. Louis, and then went back into pharmacy. So growing up, we moved so much and every three years we'd move. And that's what you do in the military. And when he got out of the military, I was in sixth grade and we moved to Dallas, which was a non-military town in the mid eighties. And we moved to Plano, Texas, which at the time Plano, Texas was going through this massive boom and it was the teenage suicide capital of the world really they had more suicides there per capita than any other city in the country and it was because of the growth of wealth that was coming in in the early 80s and the mid 80s and so we moved there and went from the sheltered town of st louis and the military where everybody knows each other you you kind of move in military groups it's like oh yeah we used to be stationed with you in england and kind of to going to a school where the graduating high school class i think at plano high school that year was 2500 so it was very large very overwhelming and we moved there. My dad went back into pharmacy and he hated every minute of it. When he came back from Vietnam, the military asked him to go to med school. He turned it down because he didn't want to lose his family yeah. be- or after he was married, because he, he was afraid he was gonna lo- his best friend did it and got divorced. So he gotcha. was like, not gonna yeah. do it. He always regretted that. And so I kind of lived with a dad who always regretted not following through on his ultimate dream to be a physician. Okay. And so we spent two years in Dallas and then we moved to Baton Rouge where he went into the hospital pharmacy And we moved and moved to a smaller town, which is a little bit better than Dallas. I think we all struggled in Dallas and moved to Baton Rouge. And then he kind of worked through that system. But his always thing was never stop until you get the terminal degree. You know, he always felt that either from finances or he was afraid to do it. He never went back into Mm -hmm. it. Funny thing about my dad is he passed away. But when he retired multiple times from the pharmacy world, he took his boards in the state of Florida at 68. Really? Yeah. And as a pharmacist in Florida, you can't reciprocate, so you have to take the boards. Okay. So at 68 years of age, he went yeah. back and I took the boards. <laughs> and I'm Not like, easy to do. Oh, he did great. Yeah. He nailed it. That's he, amazing. Yeah. And uh, he was like, man, God, there's things on here I never knew. But um, <laughs> he was like, things I'll never know. But yeah. that was my dad. If you're going to do it, you do it with everything you got. And my yeah. mom was the same way. And so moving around a lot, you kind of become this formed group. Sports was the core of us. We yeah. we'd go to baseball games. We watch a lot of baseball. And for me, it was what I wanted to do. I was a late bloomer. I was always really, really shy because when we left the military, kind of in those formative teenage years, I moved into established groups where in the military, your established group is moving with you. You move into a city where you got a travel ball team that's been together since they were eight. And my dad would always take over the team and he would like, I remember my seventh grade baseball team in Dallas. Our second baseman was a drummer who had never played baseball before. Center fielder was a soccer player. My dad wanted every, he wanted the ragtags, but he wanted to teach him the game the right way. He would keep charts about equal number of innings and equal number of starts. Okay, wow. He was really into developing kids. And he didn't care if I was the son or anything, but I'd always make the all-star teams and then somebody else would coach. And he was very, very good about that kind of stuff. And so we go to Baton Rouge. I go to a all-boys Catholic school, established school, and I was a very late grower i was a very late bloomer mm-hmm. i was the youngest kid in my class or one of the one or two and then i didn't grow until my senior year so i only played one year of varsity baseball so growing up it was a lot of i would say probably after my dad got out of the military looking back probably from the time i was uh, 13 to 16. it seems like a long time back then now looking back it's three years four years but it was a really tough because i was always behind i was always sure. not in the group I didn't play freshman baseball. I was held back to play junior varsity for two years. And then all of a sudden I got to college and it just, everything became easy. And it's, you know, it wasn't easy playing at LSU, but I found that group of people, yeah. that cohesive group. So, you know, my family was great. They were extremely supportive, but I can remember sitting in my house, eating you know, peanuts, listening to the radio of a St. Louis Cardinal or St. Yeah. Louis Blues game. That's what we did. Yeah. When you were younger in elementary school, you'd check out the biography books of a lot of the
1: baseball players. Is that correct? Why biography books? I mean, there's a lot of kids who look at the stats and look at stuff like that. But what was it about the biography? I love baseball
0: cards. But I can remember going in there and they have these little books on Jackie Robinson or Mickey Mantle or Joe DiMaggio and stuff like that. And I'd go read them because they would tell a story versus some fiction. And if you look at my books, even on my bookshelf, these aren't all my books, but most of them are biographies or nonfiction biographies, biographical moments. Yeah. Um, you know, one of my books that I love is a book called Flyboys, and it's a lot of military. I, yeah. I didn't have the guts to go in the military. I had some physical limitations that wouldn't have allowed me to do it, but I'm fascinated by the mindset of the military men and women. So I gravitate towards that type of resiliency and that grit very strongly. And so I think some of it was seeing people overcome challenges, and what it took to work through it. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, being a Jackie Robinson and having to go through the hatred and the the resistance that he did and still perform at the level that he did. Sure. And I think those are the things that that always interested me. That's really interesting. Yeah, the thing about baseball too is it doesn't matter who you are, what you look like, what size you are. If you're good, you're good. Yeah. You don't have to be seven foot one to be, uh, you know, a center fielder. You can be Jose Altuve and be, small as a gnat yep. or you can be super tall and still play your position as long as you get the job done. I think that's the essence of the game I liked. Yeah, that's a great
1: point too. Growing up, you, you mentioned that you obviously moved around a, a lot. You were a little bit shy and read somewhere else that there was some of that that caused maybe a little anxiety for mm-hmm. you. What do you think was the cause of that? Was it just the moving? Was it something new every time? I also read that you did start to see someone for some of that stuff yeah. growing up and that was kind of more encouraged and you kind of felt that that was a, an additive thing in
0: your life and so where do you think that came from and, and how helpful was it we're seeing somebody about? that? You know, looking at it now as a psychologist, I, I tend to think people either run hot or run cold. And so the people who run hot tend to be like me who tend to be more anxious. People who run cold tend to be more put in the box, put it away, I'm okay, you know, the wind can blow and I'm okay. They're going to worry or, or obsess about other things. My mom's family was very anxious. Uh, if I look back at my grandfather, my mom didn't have a good relationship with her family they were around us, but they just, they had a lot of challenges. And if I look back, my grandfather probably either had very bad anxiety or had elements of what we probably consider bipolar disorder today. Mm -hmm. He would go through very large scales of a lot of anger and instability and rapid decisions, bouncing a lot of checks, financially um, destitute to moving the family across town, running away from bill collectors. My mom though was always, we talked about it. She had friends who were therapists and psychologists and, I remember when we moved to Baton Rouge and I was in eighth grade and Baton Rouge school system is a parochial system. You really don't go to the public school system. Mm -hmm. And so I went to a, I couldn't get into the one in my neighborhood, the Catholic school. So I had to go to a, like a smaller, more fringe. Um, it wasn't really a successful one. It wasn't like the cool one to go to. And I went there for my eighth grade year and then got into the all boys Catholic school, which was very prestigious, a lot of success, a lot of pride, a lot of history. But I didn't come in with thirty friends from my middle school. I came in with four that really weren't my friends, and I started that again. And then I was an outsider for a year. And I remember just dealing with the not knowing who I was, not knowing kind of where my comfort was. I wasn't on the premium travel team, baseball teams. I was so there was a bunch of that kind of um, absence there. Yeah. And I remember we had a we had a speaker who came to speak to us one day and. this is speaking to the anxiety a little bit and it was about teenage suicide and i can remember it was the first talk in the morning and i couldn't get it out of my head the rest of the day and it was really the thought of would you ever had you could you ever and i couldn't get that thought out of my head Mm And I remember I went home, this was before cell phones. And yeah. so I go home and I call my parents. My mom was at work, my dad was at work and I said, I can't get this thought in my head. Well, of course you know what they did. They came home immediately. Sure. The next day I wasn't seeing a psychologist okay. and I had no intention. I was. It wasn't that, it was the fact of how could somebody get to that point? Yeah. I couldn't get over that. And so I went and saw somebody and they, you know, it was comforting. And then when I was probably in high school or college, I'd go see the psychologist friend of ours, just checking in more like mental health checks. Hey, is everything yeah. good? went through a bad breakup. You know, it was more like, Hey, I'm gonna go see Laura this week. So it was never a stigma for us. It was always like, there's your source. There's where you go. To me, mental health was just the way it was. And you had to do the things to take care of yourself. And that came from my mom. My dad was stoic. My mom was very engaged in human development and human experience stuff. And so I'd say that I've always struggled with anxiety, probably subclinical, but it, it helps me to do what I do. But at the same time, I have to learn ways to decompress. I have to learn ways to turn it off. Sure, it's why I don't do clinical work anymore because I can't yeah. turn off on a Friday night. Yeah, and performance work is easier. I can deal with that. I don't have to worry about if somebody's okay or safe. I can imagine that would be tough. Yeah, and you know, it's. it's I hate to say this, but you know, your Friday afternoon clinic patients are ones. There's always one right as you're walking out the door where it says something, and you're like, oh, yeah, and you just want to doesn't leave you. Yeah, you're stuck, and now you're you to help, and so. I always struggle with that. So anxiety has always been an essence who I am. And I think it helps me when I work with clients. I mean, the number of patients that I see today or clients that I see today, it's 50 to 60% of them have anxiety in the performance realm. So helping them understand like, this is what I feel and it's how have I learned to manage it through mindfulness or reading or stuff like that is, is probably been the help. So
1: what are the top three things that you do use to manage that, especially with people, you know, operating at a very high level, whether it's sports or, or any other profession, obviously it's going to be very individual, but for you, what do you feel like is very reliable for you to help manage that?
0: There's no doubt exercise works for some people. You can look at me and realize I don't exercise. However, I would like to, I enjoy it sometimes, but I, I think the number one thing that anyone needs to do in a high performance world is you've got to have 20 to 30 minutes a day that's devoted to you. So for instance, like this morning I got up, I went to breakfast, I went to just got some eggs and sausage somewhere and I just sit and read and it's usually my phone. It's Twitter now because we don't have newspapers. But if it was a newspaper, yeah. it would be a newspaper. Right. I love that time where I can redevote to myself. I love to drive in the car without the music on. And it's just sometimes that peace of mind time. Um, as an only child, I tend to be a little control freak. So I like to control my environment. And so if I can control my time, I don't have any control of my schedule. I mean, it's like you. I mean, you look at your schedule. It's where am I working today? Okay, I'm there. Yeah. But having that time to be able to say, you know what? I'm going to eat at my desk today because I want to yeah. that. So I think whatever we need to do to understand that struggle is the norm, it's not the abnormal. And then how do we manage the struggle to take it down a notch or two helps the drama that we bring to circumstances, is usually the problem, not the problem, Yeah, not the circumstance. It's the Great. drama. Right. So I think if anybody that can do, I mean, exercises, you know, one girl in my office, Emma, she is a runner. When she has a tough day, she goes home. She's a former soccer player. Yeah. Um, she'll go and say, I ran five miles, say just to burn stress. You know, my wife likes to exercise. So whatever it is, I like to cook. I mean, I love to grill, but I'm not going to do it at eight o'clock at night when I've had a long day. Yeah. So those types of things. Yeah. And, and backing up, you mentioned that family friend who you saw
1: mm-hmm. on those certain days or, or weeks where you're having a tough time. She recommended you consider psychology as mm-hmm. a profession. Was that the first time you thought about that? And if so, was that when you first
0: started to gravitate towards that or did that come later? No, I came later. So I went into school to, I wanted to do orthopedics. I was fascinated. But then when I went to college and I was playing baseball at LSU as a freshman, the amount of time it took to study for zoology and to do the labs, I was like, this is BS. I'm not doing this. <laughs> and I really liked it. I had a good friend of mine who was an orthopedic surgeon in Baton Rouge's older guy, John Thomas, who played baseball at LSU. And he was kind of the guy that was always around. And we'd hang out, we'd talk. And I was fascinated. I had a stress fracture in my elbow when I was a sophomore, from pitching and I got, I was fascinated by that kind of stuff. Sure. And so when, um, I went to college and I remember sitting there my freshman year going, I could do this, but I, I enjoy going out with the baseball team more than I enjoy studying. Sure. And school was always easy to me. And so I never really had to study. If I just went to class and listened, I could always get, make A's in high school and beyond college zoology changed that. And I remember getting the first test back and I was like, well, hell, I just got crushed and really I had poor study habits. So I started thinking, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to do the work. I I just know I'm not going to do it. And um, I switched out of it and I switched into business because I was like, well, I don't know what else to do. I'll go into business and I'll go to law school. Why not? And I was getting my degree in business and through the next couple of years, I was a 2.8 student in in college, Um, way underperforming, just doing enough to get by, enjoying the hell out of being a baseball player. Yeah when I got injured, which we'll come back to in a little bit, when I got injured playing baseball, I really struggled coming back. And it wasn't until I connected with a guy locally to help me mentally focus that I was like, man, this stuff and coming overcoming injuries really big. Cause I was bad at it. And yeah. so that summer we went and had lunch with Laura as a family, probably breaking some um, boundaries there, but we did. And we went and had lunch with her and she was like, you know, why don't you really think about psychology? You know, you, you've got it. The problem was i had taken one class, one psychology class as an undergrad at LSU. It was a night class. It was on Monday night. And I would leave every day at 7 30. So the class would start at six, would go to nine, I'd leave at 7 30. So I'd miss way too much. Majority of it, yeah. Yeah. Um, the people in the class were weird. It was very liberal artsy. I'm not liberal artsy. Yeah. Um, I was dating the wrong girl at the time. I ended up getting sick with mono, missed the last five weeks of the school year and the baseball season. Yeah. And the professor failed me because of the incomplete he got yeah. fired and so my dad had to have this big appeals with the athletic department and the department of psychology so i was like i'll never go into psychology sure a bunch of weirdos and a bunch yeah. of all this other stuff yeah and one experience very very much colored it for Unbelievable. It temporarily. and i i liked the neuroscience i didn't like the the very soft science of psychology that i couldn't quantify yeah and so when i turned back into it I had one semester left to graduate in business. And it was interesting. I always tell people I want to go to law school, but I never took the LSAT, which, you know, is one of those things where how bad did you really want to go? If you never take the entrance exam, what are they going to do? Just admit you without it? That was a sign that I really didn't want to go there, right? Yeah. And so what I did was when I switched into psychology, I changed the way I studied. I changed the way I focused. I never made less than a 4.0. I got, all of a sudden, it was like an awakening for me. What, what was that change Did you... Did you have someone help you figure that out? Did no, it was, I didn't step know back and understand what you needed to do for yourself. Or what yeah. Was it? I mean, I, I think, I think as a psychology person at the time, I wasn't mature enough the first time around to really understand what I wanted. I think we put so much pressure on our kids to identify their career path when they're 18. It's impossible. Yeah. Um, and particularly in the competitive environments we have now, the kid wants to go to med school. It's like, well, you got to know when you're 12. Well, we need well-rounded physicians. Like lawyers, we need people who don't just know the law. They know other sides of business to apply the law. Like why sometimes am I listening to a lawyer teach me about business when their major was art? Yeah. You know, I want to know from the business person who went back to law school and and things like that. So I think for me, when I went back into it, I found a place that made sense. I had the firsthand experience of dealing with the psychology of me returning from injury and struggling with my shoulder. I learned the power of the mind to overcome and then all of a sudden I wanted to understand it. And I had a couple early professors. There was one that I took in evolutionary psychology, which is a study of comparative psychology with animals. And I was fascinated by that. Um, you know, why is it that penguins have partners? Why is it that, you know, different things work? What can we study? And I started looking at it. as was like, there's a lot of parallels. And I remember it was probably this awakening moment of he hands out the test and he goes, everybody bombed this test, but there was one a in the class. And I was like, oh, I bombed And he's like, Brett got the A. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. But it just made sense to me sure. at that point. Then it was like, okay, I got it. And so I went and met with my academic counselor. And before then I said, Hey, I want to be a psychologist. And she's like, look, they're not going to accept you at LSU because you went to undergraduate here. You're going to have to leave. It's really hard to get into. They get about 400 applicants. They take five to eight. You got to have a lot of research. I'm like, I don't have any of that. And I was very fortunate because my coach's daughter was in our program. And actually as we're recording today's her birthday she passed away from stomach cancer about six years ago oh my God. so she was one of my mentors and so it's funny we're talking about it today but um lisa was kind of shepherd me a little bit okay. she helped me of what it took to get in and i was fortunate enough to get into lsu because of my baseball connections one of our professors needed a graduate student he loved the yankees and he was studying sleep medicine which i it was medical based i yeah. liked it it made sense and so I did that for a couple of years working under him. So it was fortunate. So I think the awakening was the fact that I could make a difference there. It was something that spoke to me and it was something I had firsthand experience with and I liked it. And that became a challenge to get in. That's amazing. So there were probably four or five things that I want to get yeah, back to at that point. One,
1: remind me to talk about sleep yeah. science to your mentor, Lisa, you said. Yep. And since we're here, going back to talk about baseball, a couple of questions. One, were you always a pitcher? I know you mentioned pitching and catching. Two, as I understand, you were a walk-on why number
0: 41 experience as a freshman, sophomore? Why you redshirted and what that injury was? Yeah, so I was such a late bloomer in, in high school. Like uh, In today's world of recruiting kids as a freshman, I mean, I was a senior. I held back to play junior varsity baseball, and so we went and won a World Series. And I got some looks in some colleges at that point. Went and played the next year and was our third starter on the team going into my senior year. Our number two starter ended up having some health problems, couldn't play. Number one starter, was really, really good. He played at Mississippi State. And I always did well in relief. I always was a great closer. I never really liked starting, even as a kid. And LSU called. We had a family friend who was the secretary for Coach Burtman, who's the coach at LSU at the time. She put my file on his desk and said, hey, this is maybe a kid that you probably need to pay attention to. Why she did that, I don't know. I had no other offers. I had no other opportunities to go anywhere else. I think Coach liked the fact that academically, I was going to be sound. And I think he... Saw a 17 year old kid who had long arms, big hands and had potential, but just wasn't there yet. So my dad and I in that April went down to meet with coach and he said, look, he goes, you're not good enough to play for me this year at all. He said, we have guys like Steve Carsey coming in, who's uh, ended up playing in the major leagues with the New York Yankees and the Oakland A's. He said he's gonna be a first round draft pick. You're not that good. You're not going to play next year either. But if you come in here and you look at this as a learning opportunity, you'll have a spot on the team for five years. You're on academic money. You cost me nothing. I know you're going to be a good kid. You get under the wing of guys like Paul Bird or Chad Auger who are, long-term, are going to be long-term major leaguers. You get under those wings. You let me teach you. You allow your body to catch up. When your body matures, I think you're going to be really good. But most people don't want to sit here for two years and wait but i want you to be a full part of the team and nobody will know the difference whether you're a scholarship or not and coach started that kind of program with me i was just lucky that he was starting to realize how to stockpile a roster at the time they didn't have limitations and so i went over there My, my dad's whole thing was what can you do to make him a better man and i remember coach very specifically saying it's up to brett it's not up to me and so i went in there nobody i mean i remember looking at my bio in the media guide Second team all district, I think was the only, because that was only probably not enough pitchers to fill out a first <laughs> and second team all district. And I had no accolades. I had no other offers and I go in there. Right. And I was fully ingrained with the whole team. I'm hanging out with guys that are all Americans and yeah. just every part of it. And I was young. And so there were four of us red shirting that year and we hit the weight room very, very heavy. And that we had a strength coach by the name of Terry Grisham, who's actually based in Birmingham now. And Terry was brilliant. And A lot of the things that we're doing now with heavy balls, light balls, all this, we were doing in 1990. Really? And so he was trying to put a lot of weight on me. I was actually skinny back then, but I I wasn't strong. Okay. And so, you know, we'd go in the weight room and do three sets of 40 of squats. He just wanted high rep, high volume, and it would be shot. So I would dress out and then me and another guy would go in the stands and do the radar gun and do charts. And it gave us an opportunity for me to mentally break down the games. My colleague who did that ended up quitting, didn't want to do that. And after a couple of years, he was like, I'm done. I'm not playing enough. For me, it was like, how can I learn to get on the field when I can't throw 94 miles an hour? Right. I have to wait till it comes. And so we win the national title my freshman year. That team was loaded with pitching staff. And I come back my next year. I think, okay, I'm going to do it. And I'm still not good enough. He was right. I pitched three innings. That's when I got mono. I had to stay at home over the summer instead of playing summer baseball to get eligible. I had to get, finish my classes. Mm-hmm. And I had trimmed up a lot. I'd, I was playing in a beer league, summer league, that a bunch of former players had put together. And we just travel around and play high school teams. But one of my teammates, who was a pitcher, was now a catcher. The first baseman was a former first baseman. He just We just had a good time. Yeah. And all of a sudden, my velocity just skyrocketed. Hmm. And I couldn't go play anywhere else because I had to take calculus. I remember it was brutal. I had a five-hour calculus class that I had to pass in order to stay eligible, yeah. and I missed six weeks of the season. So I'm self-teaching myself this, right? That same semester when I had the psychology class, I made an A on my final because I, I should have known at that point that I liked this stuff. Yeah. But anyway, so I'd go play, and all of a sudden the game was easy, and I would just start throwing a lot. And I came back for our fall, and we were going into the 92-93 season, so 93 would have been that year. And I come in the fall, and all of a sudden you could hear the ball different in the bullpens. And guys were like, man, you're throwing hard. And my breaking ball got tighter and I started getting command and I started dominating and the art fall games. I mean, it was just easy. I mean, I could move the ball around. I could make it run. Now scouts are giving me scout cards and they're asking me to fill this out. And they're looking at my body and you're like, you're 20 years old, you're six foot five, you're 220 pounds. You got a live arm with not a lot of innings on it. Yeah. And they're talking to my parents like, look, it'd probably be a 20th round pick. If he has a good year, it may go up, but would probably next year's the year. And I'm like, Okay. Great. So we're preseason number one. And my roommate, Todd Walker, who played 12 years in major leagues, was the number eight pick in the draft. is like, dude, I mean, you're here and you got some of the nastiest stuff I've seen and I'm feeling so good. What happened was the last inner squad we played in, it was the Alabama LSU game. And we had to delay our fall start because they had to fix our field for drainage issues. South Louisiana, it's important. And they played at 2 o'clock, and then we played that night at 7. I mean, you got beat but in football at that time. But I come back, and I pitch. And I remember I threw six innings. And that week, every time I threw, I felt a pinch in the front of my shoulder. And I just thought it was soreness. And I would take some Advil, and they'd rub it down. And And at that time in college baseball, I'm not blaming, but you had a student assistant trainer. You didn't have a full-time trainer. You didn't have any arm care. You didn't have anything. Yeah. And it was like, hey, is it okay? Yeah, just put some Bengay on it. Take a couple of Advil, and let's go play. And I went out and pitched great and it was awesome. I had no pain, got loose. And the next morning I woke up and went back to the intersquad game and I couldn't comb my hair. I couldn't get my hand up to my hair yeah. to comb it. And I was like, yeah, something's not right. And they're like, "Hey, you got some tendonitis and you got an impingement. And I'm like, all right, we're going to shut you down. Well, it's the last intersquad game of the fall anyways. I mean, it's November. Yeah. And so I did that and they're like, let's just take a course of naperson over the holiday and Another teammate of mine had the exact same problem, and when he went home, he found a local PT to work with him. But they shut me down. They were like, "Don't do it." Okay. Um, I wish I'd gone into therapy. Yeah. And when I came back, I remember throwing in the indoor facility and going to throw and feel like I had a hot knife going into the front of my shoulder. And I started changing my throw motion. I remember Coach Burman walking by me and going, "What is uh What is this? The ball had an arc on it." And I'm like, "I just man, it's killing me." And so he shut me down for another week. And then it shut me down. And then it was the time for the quarter zone shot. And then I did that. And then they shut you down for two weeks. And then it was come back. Now the season's getting ready to start. Yeah. And I'm not even on the roster. Yeah. I mean, I'm on the roster, but I'm not. I went from being stud to going out to throw. And instead of throwing with the flexion and the thing, I'm guarding it. Yeah. And I'm watching my velocity from low 90s to 85. And now it's like, look, we're going to try to get you back in the fold, but we got to go on without yeah. you. And my entire throwing motion changed. And every time I pitched, everyone would say, man, why are you breaking your hands different? Why are you doing this? Why, But I never once got back that freedom in my shoulder. Yeah, And I don't know what it was. I mean, I guess it was tendonitis. I'll tell you a story about that in a minute.
1: So, so you never ended up going to see an orthopedic doctor? MRI, no, I mean, nothing. besides the
0: orthopedic doctor shooting yeah. it up one night after yeah. a basketball game.
1: Said so
0: that was about it. That was about it. it was, you got tendonitis. Gotcha. You know, bicep tendon is uh, the trough there is yeah. really inflamed. Yeah. All right. So... I ended up just rebuilding my throwing motion, but my velocity was never the same. And that's what got me into psychology. The funny story about that was I was playing golf one day out at Grayston here in Birmingham yeah. and Bill Clancy, Dr. Bill Clancy. Oh, yeah. Okay. I don't even know how to describe Bill Clancy, but. He's a character.
1: I've met him once. Okay.
0: And um, he. He's a
1: legend. He's a legend. First of all, he and Dr. Andrews go way back. They really started Andrews Clinic here at Hell South back in the day. Uh, the two of them together kind of really developed a fellowship here as well. And everyone knows Dr. Andrews, Bill Clancy, I think a lot of people know as well, but doesn't have the same notoriety or, or longevity manner. or bedside manner. And the first time I met him, he's a little bit gruff and we'll tell oh, you yeah, exactly what bit. he thinks. Yeah, a little bit. A lot of big gruff. And the first time I met him, he's, Dugas or Cain introduced me to him and said, Hey, this is Mike Ryan, one of our new partners. He does hips and hip scopes. And he goes, why the hell would you do that? And I kind of looked at him, I didn't really know how to answer. And he's like, yeah, that's just, that's stupid. All those people are crazy. <laughs> I was like, that's not entirely true, but okay. But he was a great surgeon. Yes. And he's retired now, back up in Wisconsin, but dealt with uh, the hockey team, all the athletes oh, yeah. down
0: here and great surgeon. And one of the pioneers one, of the ACL. And, 100%, I one mean, you the pioneers it, if you them. play golf with him, you'll hear it. But you know, you go yeah. play golf with him and you know, he would always talk about the wind, whatever. So he walks up to me on the range one day and he goes, Brett, let me see your arm. And he takes my shoulder and starts moving it around. And he goes, you weren't much of a pitcher, were you? And I was like, "I was pretty good. He goes, no, 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 I mean, you didn't throw in the mid-90s. And I said, well, I did at one point. I hurt my shoulder. He goes, well, you tore your labrum. And he's like, but we didn't image it back in 1993, 94. So he said, let me tell you, they told you biceps tendonitis, right? He goes, how the hell did you ever pitch after that? And I said, well, not very hard. Yeah. And he goes, well, that's amazing that you continued to pitch with a torn labrum. And he said, does it still hurt to throw today? And I said, well, I don't throw much, but yeah, it'll get me every now and then. And he's like, ah, that's pretty amazing. And that was probably the only compliment he ever gave me. Yeah. But what happened was <laughs> when I came back, my throwing motion was really herky-jerky and I was about to go to law school, you know, uh, follow that path. Yeah. And my parents sent me to a guy to, to work on the mind and guy was a hypnotherapist. He wasn't any licensed anything. He was sure. from Northern Ireland, but he was wonderful for me because I was able to go in there and work on the mind. And then I found something in the bullpen I mean, I was done. I mean, I was throwing bullpens with our equipment manager. I mean, I wasn't even on the radar of playing. And I found a slider in the bullpen. And so my velocity went down to maybe 84, 85 miles an hour. So SEC right-hander throwing 84 miles an hour. Not very hard. Yeah, But I could throw my slider 82 miles an hour. So when you look at changing a plane that fast, that hard, with a herky-jerky throwing motion, I could go through the lineup one time and get guys out. If I stayed in the lineup against the SEC more than one time, they'd hit me. Well, I just started building this belief of this chip on my shoulder that I was going to beat you. And so that's what got me into psychology was like, if I can struggle that much with my injury, overcome it and still succeed with really below average stuff. Yeah. Me sitting in that game, doing charts, understanding how to break down a game from a mental standpoint, because we would spend a lot of time in that at LSU anyways, that was really helpful. And I think that's probably was the culmination of how I ended up where I was. Yeah. I mean, that's
1: fascinating because there's always this interplay between talent and hard work and the mental aspect. I think oftentimes it's missed and not, not thrown in there you know, because people say, and you mentioned this before, if you work hard within the 10,000 hours, you can overcompensate or compensate for a lack of talent. However, if you have talent, it probably makes it a little easier, but at the same time, there's this mental aspect that if you kind of merge all three, you, you can figure out a way to get to that point, to yeah. outsmart people that you're competing
0: against. And I think it's a very fascinating thing that you learned that so early. Well, and and I had to because moving to Baton Rouge in eighth grade and watching LSU baseball grow up. And if you're not from the area, LSU baseball is the gold standard of college baseball in the country. And, mm-hmm. and now none of the comedy at 10,000 people at a game during the week. It was a great show. LSU football was really struggling at that time. Shaquille had just left LSU. And so LSU baseball fit this perfect gap of winning multiple national titles. So we had a very large following. I wanted to be a part of that. And I knew that if you had better talent than me, you couldn't outthink me. And if I could out guts you and be grittier than you, then I could beat you. And I had to change my mindset to go after you. And it took me a while. I mean, I wouldn't like it was a, it was a, there's a ball sitting up there from signed by Nolan Ryan. I mean, that, that symbolizes the night that it all changed for me. Okay, There was a moment, I tell the story all the time if people know anything about me, but what happened was I had struggled in the first couple outings. And I'd struggle because I always would go back out. And because I didn't have my traditional throwing motion, I had lost belief in me. The first batter or two, I'd always try to find my way and I'd get in trouble. I mean, you find your way with a hitter, they're going to crush you. And if you walk that batter, 80% of the time, they're going to score. So you can't walk them. And we knew those stats and we beat those into our team every single day. And so it's about the fifth weekend of the season. We're playing TCU. Nolan Ryan is there because his son, Reed Ryan, who I guess is the president of the Astros now, was playing for Texas Christian, TCU. And I get this ball signed by Nolan. Nolan was my idol. Okay. And he walked by and he was what you'd expect Texas rough rancher dude, you know, like not a lot of small talk, but he signs the ball. I come in the game in about the fifth or sixth inning. We got the bases loaded, nobody out, and I get out of the inning. I come running off the field and I'm so excited, man. I'm like, boom. And coach stops me and he's like, do you want the good news or the bad news? And I would say that if you would ask me in the moment, the bad news would be that you were taking me out of the game and I'd have been okay with that. Yeah. I'd done my job and I didn't need to go back out there and do it again. But he said, that's the best inning I've ever seen you pitch. The bad news is if you walk this next batter, I'm taking you out of the game. Now, knowing coaching today and knowing how we go about things, that's we, we would want to say that's bad coaching. It wasn't because I walked the guy on four pitches and he took me out of the game. The next day I'm angry and, and I give my dad credit for this. So after the game, I see my dad, I'm signing autographs because we always do that after games. And my dad would sit there and he said, what happened? And I, he said, why did coach take you out? I said, man, he told me if I walked this guy, he goes, well, don't walk the guy. Like it wasn't, yeah. coach is a jerk. I yeah. had to talk to him. It was be better. Yeah. Right? Like he gave you an opportunity. Sure. You screwed it up. He set the rules for you. Be better. Yeah. Like it's not that hard. And so the next day I remember it was a gorgeous day and I get dressed. I put on my uniform and I'm not going to pitch that day because one, he told me when he took me out, I wasn't good enough. And, um, and I put on my uniform. I don't have a jock on. I don't have a cup on. I don't have anything. I don't even have my ankles taped. I don't have anything. And we go to this clinic off site, and it's about an hour away for the five pitchers that threw the night before. So we're driving back, listening to the game in the first inning and we're stopping at McDonald's and we're loading up on McDonald's cause the GA is paying for it. And we're coming back in, I'm eating a big Mac and walk in the stadium and we're literally going to sit in the stands and look in the stands. That's what we're going to do. Yeah. There, it's, it's early season. So we have all pitchers doing charts. So the ones that aren't there, get your sunglasses on and just watch the game. Yeah. Okay. And so I'm walking in the stadium and our starting pitcher who was, who had won the national title game the year prior is struggling. And the trainer says, go get in the bullpen. Coach wants you lose." And so I go through my spikes on. I haven't thrown yet. I get loose. I go in the ball game and I get out of a second and third nobody out. And the kid just, it, the, the inning went to hell in a handbasket. I come in the game and I get out of it. I strike out the side, three in a row. I come off the field. Now I'm pumped. Now I'm pissed. And coach walks out and I'm like, you tell me that again. And now I'm fighting. I didn't tell anybody what happened the night before, but I sure as hell told him in the dugout what happened this time. Yeah. He gave me the same scenario. And my roommate's walking by, and he's like, dude, just just go out there and fight. And so, you know, I'd get out there in the game in the warm-up, and I'd be like, okay, that would be a strike. Okay, that would be a strike. And so I went out there, and I pitched, and I walked the guy on five pitches, and he left me in the game. And I can remember to this day getting the ball back, walking behind the mound and going, okay, now I'm going to fight. Next pitch, dude hits it off the wall. And coaches, I mean, the minute the ball hits the bat, boom, coaches out of the dugout. He knows what's up. This guy had yeah. just an unbelievable sixth sense about baseball. And he comes and gets me. He's like, you're just scared to death to play for me. You just can't. You just don't have it. And I was so angry. Wow. And he takes me out. And I went back to the guy I was working with mentally in the next day and, and Monday. And he's like, or two days later. And he said, uh, what were you trying to do out there? And this guy knew nothing about baseball. And I said, well, I was trying not to walk the leadoff batter. And he said, well, why, why would you do that? I said, well, I'll go through the whole thing. He goes, well, you ever think about striking him out? I'm like, yeah, but if I try, I'm going to walk him. And he goes, no, the mind doesn't do it like that. The mind does what it's built to do. And it's about going for it. And he goes, how about you just change your entire MO? Why don't yeah. you try to strike out everybody you face? I'm like, but I throw 84. He goes, I don't care. Will it beat them with your mind? And that day I changed my entire mindset. And I said, I'm going to strike out everybody I face. And if you look at that season, I ended up pitching. I led the team in appearances. I had the lowest ERA. I had some one of the highest strikeout ratios, fewest walks. Also, give up the most home runs because I just throw it over the middle when I had a two count. I wasn't going to walk them. Yeah, in the College World Series, and I was throwing eighty-four miles an hour in the SEC. Wow! And I would—it didn't matter who you were. If you were a first rounder, it got me more excited. And you know, that was a moment for me where that was probably the moment when I realized if you, to your point, I've got sub-average talent, particularly for the SEC. Um, I've got the will. But if I can outthink you, I can find the angle to beat you. Yeah, And it's going to suck when I get you out because you have to answer to your teammates how a guy as bad as me was getting you out. Yeah, And that's what it was. And, you know, it, it was hard to be all in. But I had no choice at that point because I didn't have the ability to screw up a 93-mile-an-hour fastball on the outer third of the plate and get away with it. So I had to fight. And I loved the big moment. I loved relief. I hated starting because I couldn't, I couldn't um, regulate. So I'd come in the game and, and I, I threw eight innings and in one relief appearance. I, so it wasn't like I couldn't go through a lineup. I just sure. had to be really good every time around. But I would fight you and I, you couldn't beat me. And it was embarrassing. But that's what I started realizing is like, look, I've got to find a way because sitting on the bench sucks. And in leaving LSU without having made an impact, I can't be that guy who yeah. said, I had the story in my head written though. Hurt my shoulder, didn't get a chance again, but I just couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. That's so fascinating
1: that that one conversation of someone who doesn't know anything about baseball. Mm -hmm.
0: Why why are you thinking about not losing as opposed to going out and winning? Well, and the genius of it is my coach. All right, and so there was a game later in that season, we're in the SEC tournament against Arkansas. I had gotten to save the night before again. And now think about, and I'm a closer at 84 miles an hour. Yeah, okay, that's just shocking, right? (laughs) But I could pinpoint. And my slider was really good. And so I get I come into the Arkansas game. I get out of a massive jam, and they bring me to the press conference. And I was like, man, this is cool. And um, they asked Coach, "I said, when did you realize that he could do that? How could you trust him for that moment? And Coach goes, well, there was uh, two games back in March against TCU. Well, I was like, damn, the guy had a plan. And so I never said anything <laughs> else about it. I come back from my senior year. I have a good senior year. And then it was over. But – I went back about seven, eight years ago, and I went to my coach's house. He's retired now; he's a retired AD at LSU. And we're sitting in his office, and and he means the world to me. And and we're sitting at his desk. I'm still nervous, you know, still having those butterflies of dealing with your coach. And I said, Coach, you remember the day you changed my life? And and now I remember his daughter was my mentor in grad school. And he says, Yeah, March 1994 against TCU. Twenty years later, remember the day. And he the knows reason. exactly when it was. Yeah, and he said, Brett. He goes, What you don't realize is everybody's got buttons to push. And the sign of a great coach is knowing what your button is, when I can push it and how often I can push it. And he said, you came in as a freshman and you were so far behind physically. I had to give you the time. Then I thought you were ready your third year. And I, he said, I was really excited about what we we're going to do. And you got hurt. And it was just a bad break. And he said, but your fourth year, you finally had the belief of your team because of what you did that third year. They, they believed in you. They didn't believe in you before that. You didn't believe in you. They believed in you now and you still didn't believe in yourself. I had to get you fighting for yourself. And I remember sitting back thinking, this is why this guy won five national titles. And so we went back to a, a reunion for the 91 team three years ago. And I was a red shirt that year. And, and but those are my brothers. And even though I was a red shirt and they, you know, Paul Bird, Chad OJ, Lyle Mouton, Rick Green, Mike Soraka, all those guys that played in the major leagues are just my boys. Yeah. And that was what was great about our team. It didn't matter who where you were on the team. We're standing on the field. And we're getting our introductions. And we're going through the line. And, you know, of course, I'm sitting there ego-wise. Like, I hope somebody cheers for me. And they did because you know, later in my career I was good. But coach walked over and gave me a big hug. And it was all these superstars on the field. He walks over to me and gives me this big old hug. Wow. And he says, you know, I hear you give that talk a lot. And I know you give that story. But you know why I did that. And I said, yeah, I understand. He goes, I don't think you do. He goes, I did it because how much I loved you. Really? Yeah. We're on the mat. I mean, my yeah. wife afterwards is like, what was coach talking to you about? Now we have all these major leaguers sitting up there and he singles me out. Yeah. And I don't know why I got lucky to have that. And he just, I said, well, coach, I love you and everything you've ever done for me. And That's to this amazing. day, it's that way. And, you know, I'm not his superstar. I'm not Ben McDonald, who was a Golden Spikes award winner. I'm not Todd Walker, Eddie Furness, who are both in the Hall of Fame. Um, I'm not Jason Williams, who's the all-time hits leader. I'm not Warren Morris who hit the home run at the bottom of the ninth inning. I was a guy who was a program guy yeah. who loved the purple and gold, but he changed my life. And I came from a great family, and I'm not saying that it was like I was astray. Yeah. He gave me brothers. Yeah, He gave me a, a system and a team to believe in. And he gave me an opportunity that most coaches would have bypassed me a long time ago, but he challenged me. And then his daughter was such an influence to me in grad school. So, yeah, that's incredible. Uh,
1: what a, I mean, what a mentor. That in and of itself, him being able to single you out and among all these other superstars, but I guess that speaks to to you in the sense that, like you said, the, the pure passion for the game. Sticking it out like your buddy who did not, to be able to sit there on the sidelines, learn the game, uh, really contribute to the team, be a team guy, and then eventually learn from that. I mean, that's probably sticks out to him because the rest of the guys who were there on scholarship didn't have to do that. Yeah, no. Mm-mm. So, I mean, that's incredible. But you special. know
0: what's interesting is he, he loved the preferred walk-on. You know, baseball gets 11.7 scholarships. It's the most underfunded sport in NCAA. It's the stepchild of the NCAA. Yeah. Um, and it's a shame given the fact the fan base, and and now it's really, now it's the main meet, feeder system for Major League Baseball, statistically. But he figured out a way to say, if I get local kids who are good students who are maybe one year behind, and I can get them in my system and develop them, when they mature, now I get the fruits of my labor. Yeah. And so our team was loaded with guys and he didn't care when it came down to playing time, he didn't care. Well, you had 80% scholarship. This kid had nothing. Oh, you, if you were better, you were winning. Yeah. You were playing. And we all knew that. And so for us, that was easy. Yeah. If I just beat you out, I don't care if you're a three time high school all American, I'm going to beat you. If I can beat you, I got you. And we'd play. And, yeah. and, and then what happened was he said, he said, what he realized is guys like me guys like Warren Morris or Jason Williams and guys like that, we fight like hell for LSU. There was a loyalty that was much deeper. So in the bottom of the eighth inning, bottom of the ninth inning, we weren't giving up because we fought so hard to get there. Yeah, that's amazing. And what I even find more
1: interesting and amazing is that your other strong mentor was his daughter. Mm-hmm. How did she come into the play? Obviously with the psychology aspect of it, but what was what was it so important about her that led you to psychology
0: and that led you to being where you are? When I was trying to go through the psychology program and figuring it out and everyone told me I couldn't get in, I remember calling Lisa, and, and Lisa was one of the daughters. His coach had four daughters, but she was one that was never around the program, so we didn't know her that well. She was just different, and I don't mean that as a knock against the other sisters. She was so driven on what she wanted, and so she was getting her doctor. She was in the program, and her specialty was kind of an aspect of forensic psychology. Uh, I remember her dissertation was she wanted to do was trying to help prisoners that were on death row be able to pass intelligence tests. But the problem was, it was an ethical problem. Yeah. You get them smart enough to pass the intelligence test, now they qualify for the execution. So she was fascinated in malingering. Okay. You know, like, can they fake the test? And so she was fascinated by it. She's just always was seeking answers. I don't know what it was about Lisa, why she gravitated towards me, but I remember going through the interview process and, you know, she's like, look, I got you. All my friends know about you. We're going to find a way to get you in this program. We need you a part of it because you're a late, once again, a late arriver, you're a hustler you know, you're going to get this stuff done. Then when I got in and we would interact on occasion, she was a fourth year student when I was a freshman student. When I went on internship, she was at Harvard. She did her internship at McLean and then stuck around for a couple years up there. So she ended up becoming a specialist in obsessive compulsive disorder in residential homes. Okay. So she'd bring people from all over the world would work with her and her, her advisor on breaking, you know, the obsessive compulsive traits and stuff. Okay. And so she just, for some reason, always gravitated towards looking out for me. And it was awesome from a stance of, it was brilliant for me to have somebody like her who took that interest in me, but also could cut through the BS pretty quickly and say, okay, this is what people are telling you. This is what you need to do. Gotcha. And so she was a very successful psychologist. Just one of those people that if you met her, you knew where her heart was at all times. Her husband was a physician. They had very successful. He was a faculty member at Johns Hopkins. So they moved down there and Just really great person. Yeah. And so So, lost her too early. A lot to thank for her for getting a thousand percent.
1: So, do your master's at uh, LSU in psychology, getting a PhD. And then after that, what was your first job after uh, finishing
0: your training? So, when I was finishing training, I knew I didn't want to do academics. And I liked the academic world. I didn't like the grant writing process. The capitalist in me didn't like the fact that I had to write my grant to pay for my salary. And then, oh yeah, then you did it. You were real valuable. Okay. That made no sense to me. When I was finishing up my training at LSU, I added an extra year of grad school because I changed to a new professor. Trained us in the medical model, chief residence, and all the way down. And we were hospital-based on the med surge units. And so I did a lot of work in chronic pain, headache, consultation liaison, physical medicine rehabilitation, because I wanted that area because of the injury stuff. I had an opportunity that arose to go to Brown. One of the top training programs for psychologists based on the faculty and then their level of grant research and all other stuff. And I was like, there's no way I could go there. One of their leaders in my field of behavioral medicine was wanting to start a primary care integration with psychologists. That's what I did at LSU. Okay. When I was in grad school, we were ingrained with the primary care, internal medicine, orthopedic surgery. Gotcha. um, When they would come through the primary care offices and do their outreach in the charity hospital. So they needed somebody who had done it, who could be independent. And because of the training I had with my mentor there, we had so many hours of care. When we do our applications for grad school, we'd have to knock hours off because it looked oh, right. obscene. Yeah. yeah. We would do 6 a.m. rounds. We'd do 6 p.m. rounds. And then we'd work in between and then take classes. You were doing 80-hour weeks, and that's just the way it was. I mean, you know it. <laughs> that's how we were. Yeah. Everyone else would be like, yeah, I'm a nap. Not us. I mean, it was like, and we had two small kids at the time. So it was brutal. But when I went to Brown... I sat down with this guy who brought me up there and Justin Nash, another phenomenal mentor of mine. And Justin sat down and he goes, Let's be honest, you're not like the other ones up here. And I was like, I'm not. And he said, You're too entrepreneurial. You're too businesslike. What can I do to help you? And I said, Thank you. We That's had- huge. Yeah, it was huge. That's great of him to recognize oh, it yeah. too. Cause I mean, if they don't, you know, you kind of don't, stuck. You're on your stuck. Own. Like, Figuring you're going to write your, your grants. Yeah. You're going to do your F awards. Sure. You're going to, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Justin would bring me in the office and we would talk and he just became a really close friend. And to this day we sit there and he'd say, what do you want to do? And I'm like, just, I don't know, man, but I don't want to do academics. And so I turned down a fellowship to the Mayo Clinic, a two year fellowship in chronic pain, pissed off my mentor back home because that was his students. And that was where I was supposed to be. Sure, My parents were like, what the hell are you doing? You got Brown and now Mayo. I'm like, I don't want that life. Yeah. Plus it's minus minus." 4,000 degrees up there <laughs> and um, we had two small kids and nine eleven had happened the second month of my training and we were living in Providence in the epicenter between Boston and New York. And I was like, you know what? I want to go into the applied world, but I don't want to be sitting in a clinic and I don't want to go the traditional route of a psychologist. I, I'm always about breaking boxes. I mean, this yeah. is who I am. I'm always going to do it different. And my aunt was the executive assistant for the president of Merck Research Laboratories. Okay. And they said, look, we got this substance P antagonist product that we're trying to develop for depression. You know, would you be interested in coming on over here and getting a job? So I went and interviewed with a guy, MD, PhD, psychiatrist, neurologist. And he said, look, Brady goes, I love your training. I love your background. I love your uniqueness. We need a guy who's a specialist in assessment psychologist as we do. And he said, why don't you look at this as a two-year fellowship, but you're going to get paid a hell of a lot more and we'll pay for all your moving. We'll pay for everything. I'm like, well, yeah, I'm in. So we moved to Philadelphia and did that for 14 months and the drug didn't make it. It just couldn't get the the signal strong enough, but I learned a ton of pharma. Okay. And what happened was I was getting homesick for the Southeast. Philly's great. I don't want to live there. Yeah. Rhode Island was cool. Great place to visit. Just if you're not from there, it's hard. Sure. And so I wanted to come back to the Southeast. We'd gone on vacation to Destin, met my in-laws and I got on the airplane to my wife and said, we're moving back. I'm gonna find a way. It's funny how things happen. The drug, we were unblinding studies, but post Martha Stewart era, insider trading, only the senior VP, our medical director, and one other person was allowed to know the studies as they were unblinding. He came in one day and he goes, you know, if y'all have an opportunity in the company, I would probably take a look. It's a great time, just great time to transition. I wasn't at risk of losing my job because we were working on a new drug that we're bringing in for sleep. I was working on this product and we were bringing in a drug from Germany and I was helping write the clinical trial program. Okay. But I walked back in and I had a blinking light from a ad that I had applied to on hot jobs. So I think I'm the first human being to ever get a scientific job on hot jobs, but I did. (laughs) And they called and it was Bristol Myers Squibb was expanding the role in the medical. So in pharma, you have sales and marketing, you have home office medical, and then you have a field-based medical liaison group, which are 95% of the time doctorate level individuals to have communication with you on the science. Okay. So we're peer-to-peer, but I have the scientific background to have it. So the FDA allows us to have that conversation if you ask. And then I also have all the data we needed. So we put us in the field for strategy and to answer problems and questions. And they were one year post-launch of a drug called Abilify. And Abilify was a brilliant mechanism of action. It's unique. And they wanted to move me to Birmingham. And that's what I did. And so I love that aspect of pharma, which was strategy, design, Development. It's very similar to what I do now. Instead of with an athlete, it was, you know, okay. Who are the thought leaders or opinion leaders in my community in this neuroscience world? What do I need to do to learn what they're going through? What are the challenges with our product that I can take back up to medical? Mm-hmm. I'd support marketing if they had questions or they needed us to do presentations. But I was really there to understand Abilify and the application. And then during that time we were looking at bringing Abilify into the primary care market for depression. Got it. So I did a lot of work on that. Okay. And a lot of fun with that. That's interesting.
1: And then from there is when you started to transition into what you're doing now. Is that correct? Yeah. What was that for you? The transition out of really corporate pharma to saying, all right, I've really enjoyed this. I've learned a lot. I had a good time to, I want to go a different direction. What was it that spurred the
0: combination of your sports? Stupidity. Okay. <laughs> I mean... We had kids young. Um, my wife and I had our first child. We had been married nine months, but she found out she was pregnant with our oldest daughter, um, who's 22 now. So I'll be 47 at the end of the month. And it was one of those things where we looked at it and we were in grad school. She was a nursing school. She's a labor and delivery nurse, and um, or was. That's a whole other story why she let her license go so she'd never have to go back to being a nurse. <laughs> but we wanted to have our second child close enough. So we had two children while we were in grad school and we were just hustling and she was a nurse, right? Yeah. And so when we moved here, We had a great living with Bristol. They paid for the car home office. I could go play golf on Friday afternoons. They got rid of me being able to take you to play golf, but (laughs) the, you know, all that other stuff, but I had flexibility and I could go see my kids stuff. But the problem was intellectually, I was, I was miserable at the end of the year. I'd look back and say, how many people did I meet with? I met with 400. Okay. Now I gotta do it again next year. There was no impact because per the FDA, you can't measure impact because it can't look like we're selling, we're educating. Well, I'd have amazing conversations with providers, researchers, psychiatrists, you know, neurologists. But then it'd be like, well, where'd that go? And what happened was I was getting itchy to do something. And the money was good. My wife wasn't working, she was the tennis mom. She was doing all the fun stuff. And the kids were in school. And I had a couple people at the golf course one day kind of say, hey, would you have any interest in helping my kid out, you know, on the mental side? I know you're a psychologist, I know you play baseball. I'm like, yeah, sure. Let me see if I can help. And I'm an avid golfer ever since I was a kid. So I was like, hey, why don't you try this? Well, one to two to five. And it just started growing. And I wasn't charging because one is I didn't feel comfortable charging because I didn't feel like I had enough competency. And two, I mean, I was just doing this for fun. Then I started charging because it became six to ten hours a week. And then I remember it just kept building. And then players started getting better and better and better. And then in 2011... So in the middle of 2010, my boss didn't care if I saw clients as long as it didn't interfere with my work. But my anxiety was that I was going to overperform. So if I was doing this on the side, I kept raising the bar of my performance at Bristol. I kept mm-hmm. outperforming, but we had gone through a couple layoffs, which I kept hoping to get laid off because you get a year's salary. Yeah. And I'm like, come on, please. <laughs> but I kept outperforming. Yeah. So the core group kept outperforming. The top eight of us kept outperforming. The random cuts, yeah, okay, and putting them in those in air quotes. We're mm-hmm. like, ah, oh, boy, I want to get cut, I want to get fired, right? Because this will give me the freedom to go, sure. My wife's like, we're not going out on our own until we have six months' salary banked and all this other stuff. I'm like, yeah. come on, why do you have to be so logical? <laughs> and and then I started having a little bit of help with you know, I'd help some players out, I started helping out Ole Miss a little bit because it was in my territory. and. It's like, you know, this is fun, but I don't know if I can make a living doing this. So I I had failed with a couple people trying to do joint business opportunities. Okay. I didn't feel like I could go out and open up a practice and say, hey, I'm Brett McCabe. I'm here to help you. So I thought, oh, I need to pair with a gym or I need to pair with a training facility. Disasters. Every time that I try to do it because of somebody else, I fail. Every time I do it for myself, I succeed. Yeah. You know, if you beat your head against the wall enough times, eventually you got to learn. And... So I had been helping people out. And I asked my wife one day, I said, what do I have to do to go out on my own? She said, well, you have to make this amount of money a month. And I said, well, okay, I'll do that. And she goes, no, 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 before we leave Bristol. And I was like, holy crap. Okay. And she didn't factor in the take-home pay. She factored in the insurance, the car, the car insurance, the gross pay, the bonus. Yeah. Health insurance, everything. And I remember, I, th- I think it was like a round number of like 30 grand that I had to take home. Yeah. And I remember thinking, all right, well, I'm gonna get hustling. And I went out and February of 2011, I matched it. And I really think she didn't think I could ever do it. I knew our division was going to be eliminated because Bill, if I was going to go off patent, didn't need to keep us. Right. And there was nothing else in our neuroscience pipeline. So unless I was going to work in ophthalmology or cancer, which I wasn't qualified for, I needed to do something else. Okay. And the neuroscience world in the pharmaceutical world is not the most robust right now. We, we've had that generation and it's gone by. So I was like, I'm going to do it. So because I was overperforming at Bristol Myers Squibb, I also started an initiative within the company that we use behavioral science to create our educational platforms. And it was a tremendous success. And so the company was going to bring in consultants to help bring it forward. And my boss was like, look, this is a great opportunity for you to exit and then reconsult back. So Bristol waived the non-consulting agreement because you can't normally. And then I went out on my own and then hustled for five years. And would, I always say I would lick concrete outside if that's what it needed. Yeah. you know. But I'd go meet with guys. I'd go meet with people. I would say, you know, and sports psychology is one of those things where, you know, if people want to come see me as a clinical, they say, well, what insurance do you take? Well, I don't take insurance. Yeah. I can't bill because you can't make a putt. You know, I I can make up an anxiety diagnosis, but I kind of looked at it as insurance fraud. So, you know, sorry. I think most people do too. Yeah. And so I'm not going to do that. So we came up with some strategies of the way we developed our business and based on some feedback from patients, our clients and parents, and it just grew. And then, you know, I'd have one or two players on the PGA tour that would call and they would never stick. And then I got a call one day from coach to help out a local player by the name of Graham McDowell. And that was my first player on the PGA tour. And then it just grew. It grew and then it crashed. And I had nobody on the tour for a while. And then, you know, I got a call from another player and then another player and now I've got, I think 11 or 12 on the PJ wow. Tour I work with. And yeah. it's a great gig. And then the University of Alabama called because they found my name on Google. Like I've never solicited, I've never reached out and said, hey, I've never reached out to one coach. I've never reached out to one player and said, I can help you. Yeah, I figure people will find me when they want me. Yeah, And I don't use my clients for marketing. So you won't see them on my podcast. You won't mm-hmm. see them on my thing. You'll see my my things in here. Yeah. But you won't see that. Whereas most people, a lot of people in my field are very quick to say, "Hey, I was at Alabama today. Hey, look. Hey, coach, can I take a picture with you? Yeah. You know. And I won't do that. And I I try to use a little bit of what you guys do. Yeah. That same approach. And I use y'all's. I use Andrews a lot as that example. Like we'll take a picture or we'll have a picture on the wall, but we're doing a job here. So I think it just grew, and I am humbled. I am shocked. I am blown away by who I work with. I'm blown away by the impact, and the living I can make. I try to stay as hungry as I possibly can, and uh, to say I'm lucky is an understatement. Yeah.
1: What's amazing, and you mentioned Greg McDowell. Do you think that he was one of the transition points to you going from, you know, seeing a lot of the you know local kids to seeing a lot more at the professional elite level, or? Was there something else that was that transition point in going from average you know, high school golfer to the
0: elite? Yeah, I mean, I still work with the average high school golfer. I still yeah. work with the, I call them professional amateurs, people like you and me who want to play better golf. Yeah, like, Come see me. Graham came into my realm in August of 2011. It was at the PGA Championship at Atlanta Athletic Club. And Eric Eshelman, who's the head pro at Country Club of Birmingham, called me and said, Hey, I got a guy who needs some help. Would you be interested? I'm like, yeah, sure it was Graham, and I was like, whoa. I mean, he was a year off of his US Open victory. And I thought, man, am I out of my league here? I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And I drive over there on Monday, and I meet him, walk in, Ian Poulter's at the house, Ross Fisher's at the house, you know, it's a European Ryder Cup yeah. thing. I meet with Graham, we go to the golf course, we do a practice round with Ian, I'm so out of my element. Come home on Tuesday, back to Birmingham, he calls me, says, come back on Wednesday. I'm like, okay. I mean, I had to go buy clothes. I mean, literally I had to go. I don't, I didn't know what you wore on tour. Yeah. And, and I go back on Wednesday and he's like, Hey, do you mind if we do a practice on Rory McIlroy or buds? And I'm like, so there's a picture I have on my phone somewhere, which I can find it now. And it's Graham and Rory rocking down the fairway and they're the defending us open champs wow. back to back. And I remember texting my wife and I'm like, I am so far out of my league here.
3: And, and I don't even know did you, Why do, did you
0: think that? Oh, what the hell? What, what, what did I know to teach them golf? I don't really, I always tell players, look, you're the professional. Yeah. Gol- I can teach you how to throw a slider. Yeah. I can teach you the mindset, but I can't teach you golf. Yeah. I'm a good golfer, but I, I've never been where you are, but I'm going to teach you more about who you are as a person than you've ever known in your life. Yeah. Uh, I think everybody has their own psychological fingerprint. So I'm going to teach you about you. And I, I mean, I'm walking by and there's Butch Harmon. I'm walking by and there's David Ledbetter. I'm walking by and there's Bob Rotella. And I'm yeah. like, who the hell am I? Right. And of course I didn't tweet it. I didn't throw anything out. I came back and I was on golf channel because of our group. People are like, what were you doing there? I'm like, yeah, I was just there. I wouldn't even tell them I was working with Graham. And so yeah, I can talk about Graham now because I'll tell you why in a minute. But so we're walking down, the, you know, doing that. And I'm like, I'll just give him everything I got. If I don't come back, I don't come back. But you know, deep down when you have an opportunity like that, you think you can blow it. Yeah. You think it's your only opportunity you're ever going to have in your life to work with people like this and so it's interesting, and, and so Graham has talked about. I don't know who knows. He'll probably fire me this year. Who knows? I always say that. But Graham has become a great mentor to me, and he took me last year for my birthday. He called and he said, "Hey, hey, would you you want to go to one of these business conferences with me?" I'm like, "Hell yeah!" So we went down and saw Gary Vaynerchuk, yeah. uh, Tony Robbins, and Robert Hirschevich. Oh wow! And Orlando, and he took me down for my birthday. That's incredible, it was yeah, awesome. And we're sitting there one day, and we're sitting there in the thing, and it's so funny, the lady next to him knew she, he was somebody important but couldn't figure out who it was the entire time. And then he's texting Robert Herjavec because he's buds. Okay. And the lady's, like, looking at his phone, and he's like, can I help you? <laughs> it was funny. but <laughs> And so he goes, hey, you want to go dinner tonight with Robert and his wife and my wife? Wow. And I love Graham's wife, Kristen. And I'm like, absolutely. So it was where I spent my birthday last year, and I was like, just fly on the wall, right? Yeah. But Graham was talking, he goes, why don't you ever, like, tweet we're together. Why don't you ever Instagram it out? Why don't you? I said, as a clinician, I don't ever want to violate any boundaries. He said, yeah, but I said, like, I've never had you on my podcast, Graham, and I never will. Now, maybe after a couple of years after we're done working and you find somebody better than me, then maybe we'll do that. And he said, you know, I get it. I appreciate that. And he said, but I'm happy to do it anytime you want. And I said, nah, we'll wait, because I don't want somebody to change the boundaries on them. Right. And when I say he's a great mentor to me, when you can sit and watch a world-class player like him, And see how they go about business and see how they go about their decisions and play under pressure like they do. What can I ever teach him? Now, I can teach him about him. But to make a putt to win a Ryder Cup? I've never done that. Yeah. But he has. Yeah. So I want to pick his mind. Now, as a psychologist, I get that flexibility to say, tell me about this and let me learn. And through that questioning, he can learn from himself. Sure. But just a brilliant mind, smart as hell. Yeah. Great competitor, um, great win this year in the Dominican. And he's back on another run. That's awesome.
1: Early on, obviously, as you, you mentioned, you kind of felt like you're out of your element. And going forward, when you start a new business, you're doing this on your own. It's somewhat of a, a leap. Was there a point where you crossed the bridge and you realized, hey, that was a little screw up? Or or oh, what, yeah, what was your, would you consider? God, like the first I suck at hiring of, people. Of this, is it? would that be one of your biggest Oh phase? my God, yes. Yeah. Just
0: uh, suck at it. Wrong, wrong people. Wrong personality. Uh, qualified. You know, I believe in the inherent good in everybody I meet with. People present very well. People then don't follow through. Then I get very disappointed. I worry about my reputation, so I can't go in and blow somebody up and be like, "That's the best you've got." Is you just mail that in? And you know, I've, this is the third time we've done it. So I get burned a lot. And so my wife runs the business and now she runs it like a nurse, like a charge nurse, Yeah, black and white. Yes. You did or you didn't. Yes. I don't have time for BS. Yep. Nope. So she, for the long time, would be that our team that we'd have in here would split us. They would split her as being the ass and me being the cool guy who's never here. So they hated her. Yeah. Well, what happened is I, I needed people to do things. I, I have a vision of where I want to take this. That's not what a normal psychologist would do. I want to do something different. I want to do the video. I want to do the development. I want to do the podcast. I want to destigmatize mental health. I want to get people to realize the power lies in their ability to think and plan and, and win each and every moment they're in. That's more than me just sitting behind a desk and talking to people. So I'd bring in people and I would inherently trust them and it would fail on me. And then I would take it personally. The anxiety in me is like, I just don't want to ruin my reputation. My business is my reputation, right? So I don't want people going around saying, God, Brett is a total jerk to work for. He's arrogant as hell. Like, you know, and so I, I was really bad at that. Okay. And we've probably been through, and they're good people. There's nothing. I think every person I've hired in my business, I'm not knocking them, has been a failure of me. I haven't maximized them. Okay. I've done them a disservice because I know when I consult with people, friction is what makes people better. Yeah. you got to put people under friction. That doesn't mean being a jerk. Yeah. you got to challenge them. Sure. They're never going to rise up if you give them a thing. I finally have the team in my office that makes me, I have been in my office less in the last month than I have combined in the last seven years for non-travel, just not being here because I have the best team I could possibly imagine. They get it. They understand it. They don't need any oversight, but it's taken me a long time to get there yeah. and we're pushing some envelopes. I went up and met with them today and they're doing things I had no idea we were even doing. And I'm like, right. what is that? And they're like, oh, we're doing this, this, we're developing algorithm. I'm like, all right, that's awesome, rock it. And I trust them. Yeah. So I think the seven years of pain of finding people has finally paid off to these folks. But and I'm blessed for that. But at the same time, I think that's the biggest problem. I trust people way too early. And I think that's also got me in trouble in businesses. Yeah. You know, I've I've not been paid by clients before for you know, I've had three wins on the PGA tour that clients haven't paid me for because the deal is, hey, you know, Let's try it out here for a little while, and then we'll go under contract. And then they win, and they're like, "I'm good, man. Thanks." And I never hear from them again. And I'm like, "Well, damn." Um, but I also learned now that sure. I'm very selective of the clients I take. Yeah, because I don't need to do it anymore.
1: Yeah, I think those are those are lessons that are well yeah. learned over time, and yeah, hopefully that you don't have to worry about that anymore. Hopefully, transitioning now to something one you personally experienced, but in the arena where I actually met you. Uh, as well as not only at the University of Alabama, but also during my fellowship. And the talk that you gave to us was probably the best talk we had all year. Wow, you know, we you. we have a curriculum where we go through a lot of very interesting stuff, but it's all very much you know, focused on anatomy and physiology and orthopedics and different surgeries you can do to treat different pathologies. But you were the first one of the year that was, as you mentioned, totally outside of the box. Mm-hmm. But it was the first one where I sat there and it had been something that I had never considered. And never thought about, and I learned more than anything that I had all year. And so that's why I introduced myself after yeah. you after the talk. But I think the, the thing that I, I find very fascinating is is the mental aspect of injury. I had a really good exposure as a fellow here. And, and then obviously in my earlier career, you see the amount of emotion that these athletes put in, not only to developing their skill, becoming good, working hard, playing with passion, but the moment they get injured and the first thought of their mind runs through their head that says, I may not be able to play not just today, but for the rest of the season or potentially my career. And so there's so much of that that I think is highly emotionally charged, but also very mental when it comes to the recovery. And so I'd like to get in that a little bit in terms of when you work with athletes, where, what is the earliest that you typically see an athlete after a, you know an injury? Let's say it's an ACL and going forward how do you assess that? What is the process of looking at an athlete going through that? And I mentioned the stages of like, you know, mourning and frustration, loss of identity, loss of self worth, the fear that regaining that confidence. How do you assess that and kind of going forward with an athlete? You know, it's funny,
0: right? So when I started this and I had worked in chronic pain and physical medicine and rehab and orthopedic surgeons are always the most unique to work with. I fixed it. It's good, right? You guys are engineer mindsets. Yeah. Okay. I fixed it, should work. Now trust me, my work made it work. All right, And I get it. Yeah, And I remember when I was in my training in Baton Rouge, we used to cover the orthopedic clinic and the orthopedics. I remember getting this call one day from one of the residents. Yeah, this guy cried on me. I think he's depressed. I'm like, no, he's not depressed, dude. Um, he's like, yeah, I don't know. I started him on Zoloft. And I'm like, why? Because he cried. Well, I mean, I have to... You know, to interject, that is actually a very proactive thing for my research to
1: do. I'm not sure that I would have ever done that. Right. But it it, it was so underdosed. That's not even funny. Yeah. Okay. It
0: was like, nice try. No. Okay. That's amazing. Yeah, I know. It was so funny. It was like, wow, that's like half of the starting dose. But anyway, (laughs) so when I got into this, I would meet with individuals and I'd say, well, tell me about the psychological aspect of recovery. Yeah. You know, the the therapist staff has got it. Well, then I talked to therapy staff the physical therapist or the athletic trainers and they'd be like, Yeah, this guy's off pathway a little bit. He we're struggling, or he won't go back out, he won't challenge, or she's she's got some other stuff going on and, and we're seeing some more pain exacerbation right now. And but I mean, you know, functionally, anatomically, it's great. Well, then what's the problem? And I know the problem I had. Now just to give you guys a little background, listening to this, when I was at LSU in that year, we used to have to put on it was old school athletic training. If you were hurt, you had to show up at 5 a.m. for rehab. Okay, punishment number one to a college mm-hmm. athlete. Sure. Okay. You had to change clothes and put on American Red Cross shirt and pants. It really? had a red cross with a number on it. Therefore, you could not participate in any team activities because you were deemed as injured. Okay. Wow. It's, you talk about... layer isolating. Yeah. Oh, very isolating. And, or you have to stand on the sidelines. It was very punishing if you were hurt, okay? I don't think they really understood what they were doing. And I'm not, trust me, I'm not a snowflake, okay? You can yell and scream at me all day long, tell me it's not good enough. I think we also have to do things differently. And so I started studying and looking at the way injury kind of goes through it. And I I started thinking, it's like, all right, imagine if you as the orthopedic surgeon could have a psychological conversation with a patient before you did surgery. Every patient who comes into you scared as hell. I don't care how many times they've been cut on, they're scared. Every patient, is going to go through the post-surgical rehabilitative process, which sucks. Every patient is afraid about their functioning in the future because what they know is now done. Now, if you had somebody with a a long insidious path of back pain, there's hope that that's gonna go away, but there's no guarantee. If you have somebody who has a tib-fib fracture, all of a sudden their functioning went from 100 to zero in a second. So what I started doing was kind of looking to see how people interacted and how they thought. When I first came to Birmingham, I'd have a conversation with some of your colleagues. I'm like, hey, you guys need to ask some questions mentally. Ah, no, we'll leave that up to the other guys. So this is just the evolution of Andrews, right? Yeah. And and so I would kind of like, guys, we gotta do a little bit better on this. Oh, I don't know what to do with that. I will leave that for you guys, right? If there's a problem, I'll refer to you. I said, so you're gonna wait till the house is on fire. Okay? Yeah. And so I got a call to come in and do y'all's clinic. Uh, to do your grand rounds. And so I had had this stage approach for a while, but it wasn't my first or second time with you guys. First couple of times I just talked about injury. I just talked about how stress predicts injury and also delays um, rehabilitation. It was a dissertation idea that I never followed, which was the impact of stress on soft tissue healing, mm-hmm. on daily stress, not major stress. And there's a lot yeah. of science to it. Huh? It slows down. You get a lot more activation and, and inflammation. and And I wanted to look at return to play with hamstring injury or ankle injuries with stress, and so I was always interested in this. If I'd gone to Mayo Clinic, I was going to do that. That's the grant I was going to write. Okay, um, but I don't like writing grants and don't want to be in Minnesota. So I started looking at it, and thinking, "Well, what's the course of the stages that people go through?" We have the Elizabeth Kubler Ross stages of grief, right? Which funny story: she spent time at my house. I always say Elizabeth Kubler Ross washed her hair in our kitchen sink. Um, <laughs> my family knew Elizabeth and brilliant person. I think brought hospice to the United States. Had the wow. first or one of the early pioneers of hospice, and then also had the first HIV ranch in, in America really? to help people who were suffering from HIV. This is why you're in uh, Baton Rouge? Yeah. Wow, and so um, phenomenal. Yeah, so Elizabeth was a great, great, great person. So I was fascinated by that, and I started thinking, I was like, well, wait a minute. So when you get injured, you're in the acute phase. And all of a sudden, to your point, your functioning goes from 100 to zero immediately. You're gonna go under surgery, you're gonna have more pain, Social support's gonna be at its highest. Everybody's gonna be, you know, rallying behind you, everybody's gonna be there to see you, everybody wants to help you. But you just got isolated from the team. And what you norm is no longer normal, then you move into the limited ADLs phase, which is if you've ever had a surgery knee, I, I had it with my hip, you can't sleep. It sucks. Ever you can't go to the bathroom. Yeah. It sucks. When you're 40, when you're 19 and you're using a toilet chair and you're trying to go into a restaurant, and you're worried about slipping and falling. And to go to the bathroom, if you're watching TV and you're like, do I go now or do I go later? That wears on you mentally and it will make you really depressed. Now it's not gonna be depression, but it's you're gonna be depressed. I started looking at that. And you know, when I see guys in Tuscaloosa or whatever who come in and see me in their two weeks post ACL and you look at them and it's like you look like crap. Yeah. And they're like, I feel awful. And you know, they're not shaven. You wonder if their hair's even I mean, they have the look. Yeah. And then once they get a good night's sleep it all changes. They move into limited functioning phase, in my opinion. These are my phases. And that limited phase is where now they're normal humans. They can do the normal ADLs. They can't do crap athletically. So that lasts a little while because rehab at that point is more wound care, general strength. Then they move into rehabilitation. And that's the rehab phase, the fourth phase is the very risky phase because they see early gains and then they plateau or they nadir. Then they push again and then they drop again. And what we don't do a great job of in every rehabilitative center is actually graphically showing patients their progress. We tell them, Oh yeah, you're doing great. Why? Well, you, f- you look good. Oh yeah. Look how much longer you can be on the alter G or how much longer you can be on the range of motion. That doesn't mean anything to them functionally. And you know, we, there's more functional rehabilitative tools coming, mm-hmm. but I'll tell you a story about a player I had who he, despite all the catapult data, all the physiological data that we had, it wasn't until he went to dinner with his girlfriend that he put his leg underneath his chair and it didn't hurt that he knew he was ready to play again. Really? Yes, had nothing to do with all the, and he was better post-surgery than he was before surgery. Yeah. Okay. And so it's fascinating how the mind grabs into things. And we think that kids with social support because they have a bunch of people that they're actually supported, they're not. Sometimes it's one person. It could be the therapist, the physical therapist or the athletic training therapist. And so, I started studying that. And then it was like, okay, now we get returned to play. You say, yes, players deemed ready to go. Coach hears, they're ready. Yeah, Players going, what the hell are you talking about? Sure. The game is way faster than me. I haven't broken off three sliders back to back in a game after my Tommy John. Or I haven't cut and gotten rolled up on, on my knee. And now I'm supposed to hit that hole as fast as I possibly can and not worry about my knee. Yeah. So there's phases of that. And so what I did was, and it was... Alabama's training staff, Jeff Allen, yeah. Ginger Gilmore, uh, Childers, that really bought into that. And then with you guys coming through there, started incorporating it. And Dr. Waldrop and Dr. Kane, yeah, I think Dr. Kane, And we started talking about it. It was like, look, they're early. And so I started getting almost, I started getting referrals pre-surgery. Was like, hey, we're going to have something to talk about. We're going to need this and let me help you through this. And, you know, it's not everybody, but it, pretty much in Tuscaloosa now, if somebody's got a catastrophic injury, they see me. That's great. And I think it's wonderful. Yeah. And I think it's what it should be. And I wanted you guys as orthopedic surgeons. What's interesting is your fellows, not everybody shows up to that meeting. And it's interesting to me, and I always tell this to your team that's there, as I say, it's very, they're like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I'm like, it's the sign of what it is. There are some enlightened people who look at it and go, wait, I'm ultimately in the people business. I'm not in the joint business. It's about dealing with the person in front of me. And I try to get people to understand when you're talking to somebody in a very, um, when you need empathy, get at their eye level. Don't talk down to them. If you really need to pass on, you guys don't wear white jackets. Why? You know the psychology behind that? I don't know why the decision was
1: made. Yeah, I don't know the psychology. I think part of it is honestly a tradition set by Dr. Andrews. He wears a coat and tie. Greatest bedside manner probably. Greatest bedside manner ever. Yep. And it, it takes away, I guess, some sort of
0: superiority. Yes. Right. It's exactly what it is. And so there's that we're going to do this together. My dissertation was on adherence and we studied patients in a charity hospital system who couldn't afford their diabetes meds type two. What does everyone say? I can't afford it. So it was actually Bristol Myers Squibb didn't realize at the time gave him glucophage for two years for free. It didn't enhance adherence rate 1%. And so people don't take them. Why would they adhere to their, their therapy if they can't even take a pill? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, we know the adherence rates in medicine. We've moved away from the compliance model to more of adherence, which is a partnership. Yeah. And so what I want us to do when we're going through the rehabilitative process is even from the rehabilitative staff, the athletic trainers, the physical therapists, the whatever occupational therapist is, Hey, let's work together to figure out where we are today. Let's evaluate where we are. Let's push these, let's pull back and have that versus let's just run through what we're doing because it's going to heal. And what we found is people get back on the field faster. People go back with more pride of what they're doing. They also feel like they're an act. I hate the word rehabilitation because I don't like them going back to where they were. I want them to build a better them. And I also want them to become active. I can't stand rehabilitative processes that are passive. Now, you see in organizations and teams, it's easier for us to do it, but I want them to become active. And I want them to have an active component. At worst case, I want the player to assess where they are mentally and physically every day. Okay. And communicate that so that they can say, you know, I'm at I'm at sixty percent. Well well, yesterday you were sixty five. Well, we pushed really hard. Okay. And you're expecting that right now. Yeah. Because the alarms go off. We got to separate pain and injury, pain. And we got to get them to understand those differences and why those differences are there. And when you do that, you can help them psychologically gain more mastery in, in a concept we call self-efficacy, which is the belief to overcome a challenge. You do that, all of a sudden, It's not that we're preparing them for the next injury sometimes, but it's actually when they look back, the injury has the opportunity to develop them, not define them. I don't like being defined. I don't like the fact that an injury defined my career. Right. I would like to have seen how it it did make me better, but not in the way that I wanted it to be. Yeah. That was probably one of
1: the main parts of the discussion that you had with our fellowship class, and, and then you continue to, was that idea of the rehabilitation phase Later on, once you've gotten past the initial sort of, hey, I can function like a normal individual, but now I'm not quite where I need to be. I'm in this kind of gray zone. Uh, do you think a lot of that is really athlete-specific, meaning some are better at it, some have more endurance, some have the ability to kind of breeze through it, and some have much more struggles? And if that's true, what do you see in characteristic and personalities that makes it easier for
0: some and harder for others? I think if you look at the adherence-based material, right, you know, if somebody has a history of injury in their past that they've been able to demonstrate and overcome, then or somebody around them has had a positive history, that really helps. You can earmark, you can anchor into those. That, that's, that's beneficial. If you have somebody who historically has a distrust with uh, authority, we've got to address that. Um, because they're gonna play games. They're gonna split therapeutic staff, They're going to talk to you. They're not going to be honest with you. They're not going to be. And so you have to establish those ground rules ahead of time. I think understanding the severity of it, we oftentimes don't realize the layers that are impacted by the injury. Despite the fact from a financial standpoint, parents invest a lot of money to get kids to a certain spot, to see a kid hurt and having a hard time, they want to push it and go faster. So those kids oftentimes are not just playing for themselves they're playing for their parents. And that doesn't matter about socioeconomic status. I see that across the board in a variety of different settings where kids are very in tune to their parents. They're also very in tune to their coaches. And I try to get coaches to understand language too. Um, you know, if somebody can't go, it's not a, it's not a negative. I give them one or two opportunities to fail before we start judging their failure. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's not the fact that anxiety is an issue or it's who has the, Who has the wherewithal to stick it out and figure out how to navigate through it? Because going through the injury process, there's some dark days that go in there. And we have to support them and realize, you know, listen, coaches, travel your injured players. Yeah. Don't leave them at home. Is there a physiological reason why they can't go? I get it. You know, like, you, you know, adaptations for travel, but let them go. Put them in the press box and have them break film. Yeah. That's their social group. And you leave them at home and everyone comes back and is sitting at the table, eating lunch, laughing about it. And that person is left out. Because usually when they travel, particularly in a college or professional ranks, they take the best therapeutic staff too. So now you're stuck with the intern who is like just going through the motions. So I think you got to look at all those different factors. I don't think there's one personality that helps. You know, you want to know why they want to come back. You want to know what they believe that they can come back to. Yeah. What do you think? You know, I think also a great tool to to ask before surgery or right after is, what do you expect this to be? Yeah. How do you expect this going? They're like, well, my friend came back from an ACL in four months. Okay. Well, my friend came back in 60 days. Or I want to be like Jerry Rice. It's like, okay. We have we, to reset these expectations. Yeah, we need to reset yeah. this as expectations. And also, ask him a simple question what is an indicator that's important for you to see that you're healthy enough to return to play? Yeah. Ask them what they think it should be. I learned this working in the charity hospital system. You come in, he's like, well, your LDL's this, your HDL's this, your hba one sees this. Patient, Yeah. Okay, we learned early in Baton Rouge, it's like, well, your blood's hot, you got sugar, and you're na- you've lost your nature. That means you got hypertension, you got diabetes, and your sexual functioning is impaired. You talk like that, all of a sudden, they're like, you got me. Yeah. Okay, so when you're talking to a patient in football, Hey, what is it that you want to see? Is it when you cut? Is it when you feel? Is it when you wake up? Every kid who's had an injury wakes up in the morning. The first thing they do is they test their injury. Never seen a player who doesn't do that. Really? Yes. They get up and the first thing they do when their feet hit the ground in the morning is they're going to test their knee. I used to do it with my elbow. I had strained a ligament my senior year and I'd sit in class and hold onto a hat and pull on it to see if the tendon was sore. See if it would hurt, yeah. Well, if I do that 50 times in the day, don't you think my tendon's going to be sore? Okay. So- I don't want them testing. Yeah. Well, that's an anxiety response. I test because I'm anxious. So you ask, where are they indicating? And then there is a lot to be said about placebo. Hey, you will see this. Yeah, you will. Hey, you're going to sleep like crap for the first two weeks. Just be prepared. Yeah. I mean, I remember after my hip replacement, I uh, your colleague was like, "Oh yeah, you can sleep on your left side. You're not going to be able to, but you could." I was like, "All right." No, I couldn't. But I mean, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and be like, I just want to sleep. So I'd go sleep in the chair. Yeah. That, I was able to sleep. And I look at buddies, that might have shoulders. I'm like, God, I can't imagine. Yes. Yeah, you know? Much worse. Much worse. Yeah.
1: Is there a particular athlete that you have seen go through the injury process that
0: just knocked out of the park for some reason that was above and beyond other people that you've seen? I'll do one that's been talked about. in that way I'm not violating anything. But when Kenyon Drake broke his leg, He had a tremendous response. And your colleagues, Jeff Allen's team, the entire athletic department at Alabama was so amazing. And then we returned to the field and had a great year and then broke his forearm. And that's why I've got the picture up here from Sports Illustrated with Dr. Waldrop in the background, but it's signed by Kenyon, because I know the joy from Dr. Waldrop on that moment. Yeah, I know that from a practitioner standpoint. I had that same joy too, to see him go back out and to take another possibly very catastrophic injury and run right through it was brilliant today. Yeah. Kenyon was somebody who I thought did a brilliant job from a stance of taking what was in front of him and working through the frustrations and anxieties that go with it. And you know he's succeeding in the NFL. I mean he's he's he had some troubles early in his time at Alabama, but he grew up and I think his injuries were the best thing that happened for him. And, and nobody wants to say that, particularly for the nature of the injury he had. Yeah. But it was a brilliant. I don't know if you were there that day. If you were. No, I wasn't, but um, I've, I've
1: heard this story itself from Dr. Kane, Dr. Waldrop, and we were just talking to Jeff Allen yesterday, and that was one of his most memorable moments with a player yeah. is him reaching across that goal line with the football in the hand and the forearm that he broke on top of the fact that he had a catastrophic ankle injury the yeah. year prior to that. So yeah. pretty remarkable. And that. you know
0: what's interesting about Kenyon too is he'd been there through the run of some unbelievable running backs. You know, the Eddie Lacy's, the Mark Ingram's, sure. the Trent Richardson's, and then came in after him, I guess, was um, Derrick Henry nope. or during that time. And he was always the guy that just couldn't get out of the doghouse. And it wasn't because he was doing bad things. He just wasn't doing the right things. It wasn't like he was doing bad stuff off the field. I just He would just tick off coach. That's yeah. what it was. Okay. Yeah. But when that injury happened, there's a great picture of him leaving Vault hemingway Stadium in the helicopter. And it was like for the players to go back out and play. And what he meant to that team and I saw something last year too. I, there was a player who had just had an ACL reconstruction, and he was two days post-op, and he was laying on the table at Tuscaloosa, and so he was still kind of medicated, right? And you could tell. You can just see him in their eyes. And another player that I was working with, a female who had an ACL reconstruction, and she—they knew each other, but she walked out of my office. And she looked over and she saw him, and she went over and just gave him a big hug, and they just sat and hugged each other. And it, every other player in the training room stopped because there's a moment when it comes to injury like that that they get it. Right, they yeah. they understand it. There's a respect there, yeah. And and this young lady had had a complicated recovery, and she's doing great now. Yeah. But it was very interesting to watch of how she just walked over and just gave him a hug and said, "You're going to be okay." Yeah. It's going to be hard. That's that's what we're there for. Yeah. And I think that's when you see somebody like a Kenyon, he does inspire other guys to say, "Okay, somebody else can go through." I mean, that's not an uncommon injury. It's not common, but it's not an uncommon injury in football. Yeah. You're going to see it. Guys are going to roll up on each other. Yeah. And so it's important, I think, to have those guys and share. And I think it's also important when you have a guy or girl going through an injury is find a model for them that they can compare to and talk to. Right. I learned that. I hate to say I learned that when I was working in substance abuse. I'm not a recovering alcoholic. I'm not a I'm not very much of a drinker, but a recovering alcoholic can call BS on an alcoholic in a heartbeat. They know the signs and the symptoms. Right. They've been there. And I've seen that with injury. When somebody's been through that ACL and they know that, hey, you're going to feel some like one of the things I didn't realize with my hip is and I had a former client of mine whose dad had had a hip replacement. There was a former NFL guy and I texted him and I said, man, did your dad feel like he tore his ACL like three or four days after the surgery? And I said, I feel like I tore something in my knee. And he's like, yeah, he said he actually called his surgeon right after he did it. And he was like, I think I, he goes, no, nah, it's just swelling. But I literally thought that I had torn. I don't know if, what that is, but I literally thought I had torn my ACL.
1: Yeah, probably part of it is just the way with the position. Yeah, your leg in surgery, we like rotate your knee. Yeah, yeah. I've seen the video after it. the fact. Yeah,
0: and yeah, yeah. No wonder my knee hurts. Yeah, no wonder. My hip's fine. But yeah, yeah, my hip is great. But I was like, I literally, my mind was like, yeah. oh my god, now I got to go have one of these. That's how it felt. Yeah. And and so having somebody who said, oh yeah, I've been there. Just layperson conversation. Yeah. You know, it's like, hey, yeah, I've been there. I mean, trust me. Oh, has this happened to you yet? Yeah. No. Well, wow, that shared commonality and that identification, yeah. with a similar circumstance is huge. Yeah. I think brings you down. Really, is a very reassuring sort of experience. Yeah. Then I had my experience with Coach having his surgery. They asked me. They said, "Okay, what's he need to expect?" I'm like, a week at home, and then two days later, he's at the office. I'm like, All right. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, yeah, yeah, okay. Some people are just abnormal. Yeah, I said, but it's gonna hit him. Yeah. it's gonna hit him hard. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it ever did. I don't think it did either. And now I gotta act like, well, I mean, it. It was Christmas time for me, and it was just a yeah. slow time. Just you know. slow time, yeah. yeah just yeah. slow time. Confidence, obviously, I think, is a very important thing for athletes.
1: How do you work with athletes who have lost confidence? And a couple that kind of come to mind. One, I think about golfers like Jordan Spieth. I mean, he had a phenomenal, you know, first part of his year. Twenty-one wins the Masters, and then he's struggled it recently. Or even take the, you know, Jalen Hurts and to a Tonga experience where Jalen did nothing wrong, played well, great athlete, great teammate. You get to the national championship, we're struggling coach makes a decision puts a freshman in they win and the next season he doesn't play mm-hmm. until you know second third of quarter whatever it is i mean i would imagine that my confidence would have taken a huge hit at that point how do you educate or work with athletes that are, are
0: experiencing something like that to get them back and say listen it's going to be okay and confidence is one of those elusive things when you don't have it you feel like you'll never get it when you got it you feel like you'll never lose it And when you're really confident, you simplify things. And when you're not confident, you complicate everything. The important thing when a player loses their confidence is to look at where they're increasing their noise and drama all around them. They will usually go down the rabbit hole of technique and they will over control technique to try to produce an outcome. They'll focus on things that probably, I don't wanna say don't matter, but they're more aware of things. When they're confident, they, they can take anything and make the most out of it. When they're struggling, they need everything lined up the right way in order to succeed. And their expectations rise. So when I look at a player who comes to see me, nobody comes to me because they're playing well. I've yet to have that guy or girl. Everybody comes to me when they're—I call it suckville yeah. when they're stuck in suckville. That they suck. Okay, and so the self-judgment is extremely high. They feel like, why should I be here? I've done everything right, or you know, maybe they haven't done the right things because they've cut up practice and now they're paying for it. The hard thing is, as a player, is that you have to get back to the core essence. And then you have to be patient because there are also times that when we're very confident, luck happens and we take it as a personal, that we did it. Yeah. And when we're unlucky, we feel like the world's against us. So you have to get them to be patient and look at the long term and say, we're gonna start building momentum in the little ways that we do things. We're not gonna look for all or nothing outcomes. We're not gonna look for great days or bad days. We're gonna look for levels of improvement. We're gonna look for the things that we do every day that we can improve on. And I wanna get them off of the outcome. Now outcomes matter, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm all about winning. But I want them to understand that they can't really control it. They gotta build mastery, they gotta build confidence over time. And when you go to new areas that you haven't been in before, the game speeds up and the game gets faster and you start protecting. So we gotta get you in those examples enough time. I mean, probably the first time you were in a trauma center, it was so fast and noisy you couldn't, now you walk in and oh, yeah. you find peace within it. Yeah. It's still chaotic. It's the same chaos, sure. okay? And That's a great point, yeah. And so it's the same way with the game, is that people walk into that setting and you know they, they walk in and all of a sudden, self-preservation comes out number one. The mind doesn't like uncertainty. And yet we live in it every day. But in, in uncertainty, the first thing it has to do is protect you. And so it misinterprets everything as a threat. And then what it does is it starts looking for patterns of the past where you met those same challenges. Well, what happens if I've lacked confidence? Now I see more threat. So what happens is you gotta get them believing in like, these are the one or two things I can do well. And we're gonna start with one. Yeah. If they're really down, we're gonna start with one. So like a Jordan Spieth, I don't work with Jordan, but you know, for someone like a Jordan right now, who's, who's ball striking is, is Achilles heel, is we're gonna accept ball striking is gonna be an Achilles heel. And we're just gonna accept the fact that he's gonna get himself in some trouble, but we're gonna slowly start changing And what I've seen with players is when you get them to accept that where they are is where they are, then all of a sudden the judgment's gone. And when the judgment's gone, the kind of self-hatred that they put back on themselves removes a layer that allows them to be successful.
1: That's really interesting. I think maybe on a less elite level, I feel like for myself, when I go out and play golf, hadn't played in a while, don't even think about it. You play really well. Play great, no expectations. Next day... I'm like, I played really well yesterday, yep. and then you shoot
0: ten strokes above because yep. you're expecting this, and you're trying to switch your game. Expectations are the killer for performance every single time, and people will say, "Well, I mean, don't you don't you expect to play well?" I'm like, "No, can't expect anything. I can believe I will. I can demand I'll do the things that will help me be successful. I can't expect anything. Try to expect your pizza delivery person to show up on time. They're going to come within a range. Yeah. Okay. You can't expect anything." You have to learn to trust it. You have to learn to build belief in it. But expecting it is going to kill you every time because it's going to create tension. The first sign it's off. Yeah, I've I've definitely experienced that.
1: It's become a little bit more relevant. And we were talking to Jeff Allen actually yesterday, um, who's also on the podcast, and uh, he had mentioned you know with uh, Ginger as well and her involvement in mental health issues. Do you see that mental health issues in collegiate professional sports are becoming much more of a prevalent thing, especially with things just being in general much more in the public's eye with social media and everything like that. And if it is, as far as mental health issues go, what is it about athletes that we should be focusing on to address that
0: and make that, like you said at the very beginning of this, less of a stigma around that? I think if we look back 20 years ago, we probably thought that mental health issues were probably somewhat buffered the athlete population because exercise can be an antidepressant effect. These are goal-directed individuals who are high-functioning. So why would they be depressed, right? That's bogus, okay? There was an NCAA study, which I think is underreported, but it was a, showed a differential between student-athletes and non-athletes. You know, we're seeing a lot of anxiety. We're seeing a lot of depression among the student population. We're also seeing it among the student-athlete. Student-athlete tends to be a little less. I think it's a reporting bias. I don't think student-athletes historically are, are self-reporters. I don't think they're willing to ask for help. That has changed in the last five years, though. And I give a lot of credit to the Players' Tribune, uh, the website that does exposés and stuff. Mm -hmm. You've seen the shift that happened there when people started coming out like Kevin Love or uh, DeMar DeRozan or Theo Fleury from the hockey world and different people who started coming out saying, you know what, I am really struggling mental Mm health-wise. I'm having panic attacks. For years in Major League Baseball, I don't think there was ever a player that went on the disabled list for a psychiatric-related issue. Then all of a sudden, Dontrell Willis went on for anxiety. And then it started happening and I give Dontrell Willis a hell of a lot of credit for saying, don't make it a back strain, make it anxiety. Yeah. Okay. We've suffered it for years. Okay. People have suffered it. Statistically, you have to, but it's, it's one of those things where in the college ranks it was a very strong pet peeve of mine. in the fact of when I was on internship at Brown, I remember calling coach Bertman, who was the AD at the time. And I said, coach, look, you, you really need to put a psychologist on staff. And he said, Oh, God, I mean, I just can't afford a $60,000 year salary. Uh, first of all, I wouldn't do that job for that, but, um, <laughs> you know, God bless the people who do, yeah. but no. Yeah. But what he was saying was, I don't know, not remember. He has daughters, a psychologist, sure. and his, another daughter is a social worker. So I yeah. mean, it's not that he's anti-psychology. You just couldn't see the value of it. You know, we're going to spend money in nutrition because I can see the body fat changes. I can see that, especially when you have somebody the quality of Amy Bragg at Alabama, right. I can see an impact. Yeah. How can I see that in psychology? See, it used to be, If you had an issue, you have to go find somebody on campus. And my fight for that all along was, don't make an athlete go sit in the student mental health center because of today's social media. And we also have to normalize it. We have to make it so that if I'm walking through the athletic department, people aren't like, oh God, that's Brett, don't talk. You know, I go by Brett when I'm around those guys and girls because I want them to feel comfortable with me. You know, I don't dress up when I go over there. I I wear, you know, coaching pants and tennis shoes and a polo shirt. I want them to feel comfortable that they can come and relate to me. But I think what we've found over the last five or 10 years is you've seen an explosion in the athletic departments because more players are seeking treatment. There's more uncovering. And I think what happened is we see players who probably throughout their amateur or high school careers who never sought treatment because they could overcome whatever their pain was by their play. And they were always searching for some nirvana with going to college. So... A kid who had anger issues in a high school got bypassed because, well, I mean, he or she can shoot the basketball or a baseball kid who had social anxiety disorder was fine because we didn't have a lot of media. Now you put them in a big campus where they are having to deal with big classes, moving away from home and the like. It's an adjustment. And we also have to remember that the psychological blossoming age is 18 to 22, so that's the first sign that we see psych Now it's moving a little younger, I would say, or demands, but we have more stresses. Now we take a college kid who's been able to come and go as they want, and now we're putting them into a tremendous psychological pressure with the time constraints, academics, being away from home for the first time. Yeah. Now they're 18 playing with 22-year-olds who are in different stages of life. Yeah. They're seeing that they're not the big male or female on campus anymore, and they need support. I would give Jeff Allen and Ginger Gilmore Childers anybody who's listening to this, they're the gold standard in NCAA because of how they take it. I give coach Saban a a zillion amount of credit for this. He's never villainized mental health. In fact, he does the opposite. We had a very high profile player or could have been who was going through a pretty strong psychiatric issue. And that's how I got involved with the football team. I wasn't there to work for football for the first couple of years. Mm -hmm. I was there to work in every other sport. And they asked me to help this kid. Because they needed something in the moment. We we got, and this kid had, this kid was sick. And we, and I remember working with him for a little while. And then it, he just, he just, it got really bad. And I remember, and this kid was a trusted player. I mean, we're not talking like, yeah. you know, yeah, don't dress him. We're not going to miss it. And I remember I sent a message to Ginger and I said, he can't play this weekend. We need to put him in the hospital. And she was like, okay, hang on. She calls back and says, okay, coach says, get him wherever he needs to go. Let him know that when he comes back and he's well, there's no impact on his player chart. Wow. And I thought, that's phenomenal. Yeah. Okay, first of all, you have to deal with the embarrassment of a kid who's asking for help and needs to go inpatient for a couple of days. So it wasn't like we were involuntary committing him. This kid just needed – he just needed a break. Yeah. And he's not going to have any retribution from his coach going into a big rivalry game. Wow. That's incredible. And, yes, when he came back, he went right back into his position – team opened him up. He ended up retiring from the sport. It was better for him in the yeah. long run, but that was unbelievable. And I I don't know if people can understand. I mean, everybody wants to make their, their mind up with coach Saban of how he is. I don't know many coaches that would do that. I don't either. It, it would have been very easy to say, you're quitting on us. He didn't do that. He said, you get the kid, the help he needs. We, we're here for him first. Yeah. Shocking. That's incredible. It's incredible. I mean, that's, it's an immense amount of care showing shown players. Yeah. And so I think what you're seeing now is you're seeing, instead of having, I think four or five years ago, the psychologists from 12 of the 14 sec schools got together and we all had a conversation and I'm one of three. That's not a full-time employee. And we actually kind of like it that way at Alabama. We have like, you got, we like having experts come in from and we can piecemeal. And now those meetings have 40 people. Wow. And it's this thing of, are we dealing with mental health? Or are we dealing with performance. What are we dealing with? And, I focus mostly on performance and struggling or injury and a little bit of clinical, but you know, we, we do a lot of work on educating our coaches and our strength coaches. And a lot of times a player will go to a strength coach before they ever go to anybody else and say, Mm -hmm. look, man, can I talk to you? I'm really struggling. Strength coaches got to have the psychological empathy to sit there and say, you know, here we are coach Cochran at Alabama, Evan, I'll butcher his last name, but is a vet and he's gone through PTSD and he's been on the brink of very deep depression. He's director of player development there. And he can pull a kid in and say, look, dude, I've been where you are. I've seen stuff that you've never seen. And I've been there where I didn't know if I could live tomorrow. And so let me help you. So there's no judgment. And what happens is the kids start, they realize that and they start asking for help. And we catch them so much earlier in the cycle. That's great. And it helps. And um, that's why, that's why I always say I'm proud to work there. People give me hell from playing at LSU and working at Bama. I
1: was going to <laughs> bring that up. I'm yeah. sure there, there was a little bit. But of that's why. Conflict there. Yeah. That's why.
0: Yeah. Because I know the commitment they have to their players and I know that, and they're building on and they're adding on. And I've said, Ginger and I've talked about this for years. I said, in five years, you're going to see a wing that is going to be the mental health wing. And it's, we won't call it, we'll call it performance optimization or whatever we'll call it. Yeah. But you're going to see counselors in here daily, and we're as integrated with the team as anybody else. I think the NCAA has done, um, Stephen Heinlein, who's the medical director, has done a brilliant job of normalizing mental health and there's a report among mental health on the NCAA website. I think they have to look at the role of licensed providers as not being seen as an extra coach because it's so prevalent now. They see him as an extra coach, but if I bring in a book author, they don't see him as an extra coach, so Hmm. he can stand on the sidelines, I can't. Sure. That's wrong. You know that book author has no boundaries, no understanding of what they're talking about. Yeah. But I think the next five or ten years, you're going to see a massive increase there.
1: Working with the Alabama football team, mentioned some of the experiences you've seen. Do you think there's more of a prevalence in contact sports like football with mental health issues? At I think this age, from or? a
0: concussion standpoint. Yeah. But I'm not a concussion guy. Yeah. I know my boundaries, and that's one that I can't keep up with the literature fast enough and the relevance of it. I think what it is is that we have to get better into the communities to help them understand that mental health issues are normal. Mental wellness is something that we should all do every day to protect ourselves as much as we do to watch temperature. You know, what are the things that we do from a sleep standpoint? What are the things that we do about a self care standpoint? You know, is your mom or dad working two or three jobs to help pay the bills? What can you do to help them? Mm -hmm. How do you form relationships and maintain relationships? The little things, you know, how do you treat a boyfriend or a girlfriend? A lot of these kids don't know. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I tell coaches is take them and teach them table manners. For many of these athletes, none of them ever had table manners. Yeah, you know, they get down, they put their head on the table, and they shovel. Okay, you take a job in a corporate environment, and they do that. It's no good. Yeah. So they're going to be embarrassed. Teach them why it's important. Don't chastise them. Show them. Teach them how to write handwritten thank you notes. Teach them how to make a phone call and request help from Amazon. They don't know how to do that kind of stuff because. As one of my friends and former teammates retired from Major League Baseball, he called me one day and goes, Hey, how do you book an airline flight? Because the travel secretary for the Major League team did all their travel. Yeah. So he would call for his wife and they would say, Oh, yeah, we got you a flight leaving on this day. And this, say, Oh, okay, cool. What hotel are we staying at? He had no idea how to balance his checkbook. And that was a Major League player's worth, I don't know, probably $50 million. Yeah. So you have to teach them. And if, if you shame them or they feel shame, that psychological angst is going to build. Yeah. And so you have to teach them and help them that way. They don't know. I mean, they literally don't know to tell thank you when they're walking out of the door of a doctor's office because nobody's, I mean, was that just, I mean, that's just some basic human need. No, they don't know.
1: Yeah. So do you think there's a component of this that is socioeconomically related as well in terms of mental health issues, especially in athletes?
0: Longstanding in the psychiatric literature is the slippery slope effect, which you see the impact over generations of mental health issues that are go untreated. I think we're doing a better job of helping at a much earlier age in schools. You've got a couple of issues. If you have higher SES, a lot of times you have two parents working in the home, which creates an absence and a stress. And in the lower SES, you have only one parent or one caregiver in the home, mm-hmm. which also creates another stress. So it stresses stress. I learned a long time ago to never assume higher SES meant healthier Okay, because Many times, if you have two parents who are high performers, they may not know how to communicate to their kids. So, you know, you assume, oh, here's a dad who looks like he's involved. Okay. But because he came to the doctor's appointment, but you ask the kid, when's the last time the dad came to a game? He can't remember. Yeah. Or that dad, because I'm going to use this as a dad because usually it's a dad. I've seen this with very affluent schools where the coaches struggle with coaching the parents. And I try to tell the coaches, you've got to understand, you're dealing with their most valuable asset, their kid. But their ability to perform in their corporate world has been able to overcome barriers like you. Yeah, They are good at it. You're not. They are gonna overcome you. You're just one more step in the way. It's nothing personal. They became CEO because they moved up. You are one more block in the way, but you don't have that skill, okay? So how can we help them? So. It's always something different. I remember my kids went to a, a good elementary school here. And I remember talking to the principal at the time. And I said, is it hard? Cause I saw something that came out. I said, they had no food stamps. I said, is it, that's gotta be nice. She says, no, I have more parents in federal penitentiary for tax evasion. This is right after the Hell South thing. Mm. And it's not uncommon for us to have high profile divorces going on where they're pulling kids out of school to do depositions and the kid has no idea. So yeah. stress is stress, sure, okay? Stress is very relative. You take a kid who has a safe environment, but in a chaotic uh, neighborhood, but they're safe, they're fine. Yeah. You take that same kid out, you put them into a very safe neighborhood in a chaotic home, they're not fine. Gotcha. So we have to look at where do they get their support? Where do they get their strength and who do they go to? Kids today, you know, we, we people talk about the kids today are different. The kids aren't different if you text them. They're the same as we were 18 yeah. years ago. All you got to do is text them. They have more resources and ability than ever before. So we just got to, you know, see it in a different way. Yeah.
1: You'd mentioned before that you always enjoyed the positions where you had a little more pressure. The pitchers, the goalies, the kickers. Do you think those are the hardest positions in sports from a psychological standpoint? And of those, what would
0: you think would be the number one most difficult position? Well, I mean, I think it's clear that the pitchers are the best athletes on a baseball team. Right. Much better than the guy who stands out in right field. I'm just kidding. But <laughs> I think every position has its own demands. I think what you see is naturally people gravitate towards positions that psychologically fit them. So a kid who doesn't want to be under pressure is not going to try out for kicker. Okay, But an offensive lineman or a center, particularly in the development that we have today, they have tremendous pressures too. Even much more, if you look at offensive lineman, they're going to play the whole game. So either you're good and you're in or you're out and you're not playing. Yeah. So every player has their different positions. I think the the hard challenge is – helping kids realize and athletes realize how they can find, I don't want to say peace, but how they can find their process through their clutter and they can succeed that way. Gotcha. There's a topic that I want to come back to as well. And you'd mentioned several
1: times as far as sleep goes. I recently read a, a very interesting book called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, who's a PhD in sleep science, neuroscience. And probably what hit me hardest about that book is for five years during residency, My wife and I, when we wake up in the morning, she she would say, I had the weirdest dream. And I said, I don't remember any dreams. And I used to dream a lot as a kid. And I went through five years. I don't remember a single dream ever throughout residency. Never thought it was a thing. I just, I slept hard and that was it. And I read this book and they they go into talking about the stages of sleep and how the predominance of your REM or your dream sleep occurs a little bit later on. Mm. So it slowly increases. And it hit me, I was like, I'm probably missing the majority of my REM sleep, which is probably why I didn't sleep. And so there's this kind of pressure especially as a resident, to not worry about sleep. We slept five hours a night and that was average. And if that was not when you were on call, that was just a normal week. And so now it's the first time in my career where I turned around and said, maybe sleep's a little bit important. How do you approach that from a mental health standpoint, from a recovery
0: standpoint? Oh, it's massive. Sleep is the best performance optimization we have. Yeah. All right. And so if we could bottle it up and sell it, they could sell it on the black market for quite a bit. What happens is we romanticize this idea of four or five hours of sleep as a sexy thing to do, but it's destroying our body. We know the long-term data of people with sleep apnea that don't get treated. The long-term cardiovascular effect is massive. You want to make a person depressed, sleep deprive them. You were probably somewhat depressed in residency. Probably. Probably. Yeah. And there was a study that I, I use for my athletes, is, and I can't remember where it came from, so I'm not going to quote it, but I remember it was not like a psychology today. It was a real article. What they did is they took student-athletes, And they sleep deprived them and they restricted their sleep to seven hours or less over a seven day period. And on this seventh day, they tested them on neurocognitive tasks. They performed at the same level as people with a 0.08 blood alcohol level. Okay. So when you're dealing with fine motor movements and you're, so we look at somebody who's on a sporting field. We look at somebody who's in surgery, right? Who's having to make fine detailed decisions and use the resources of the brain, which is a, a very resource heavy organ in our body. It uses up so much of our energy to make those fine motor movements, to make those decisions. It's unbelievable. There was a book written by Daniel Pink called Moments, I believe. And he looked at research about when the most malpractice claims happen. It's after one o'clock in the afternoon. Most surgeries that happen during the morning because people are fresher. So what they did was one hospital, and I'm butchering this a little bit, but you'll get the essence. What they did is they started putting up signs in operating rooms with what happens so that when people were tired, they could look up and see the material because they couldn't recall it but nobody would admit to it. Yeah. And what happened was medical errors started decreasing. Nobody admitted they were feeling better, but obviously when you're sitting there and you're like, I'm trying to think, I mean, I've never been in surgery, but you're like, oh, there it is. It's just a cue reminder. It's like yeah. nothing personal, you don't need it, yeah. but somebody else does. Sure. And what they found with the nurses and the other people. And so that's why probably for you guys, y'all have priority surgery first thing in the morning, you're freshest. You It sucks to get out of the bed, but you're fresher. Yeah. Okay. And so when you look at sleep, We want our players to get performance sleep. Now, what the problem is, is that we used to think that taking a nap during the day was a bad thing. Um, There was a researcher by the name, or she still is a researcher, and she works for the legend in sleep, a guy by the name of Bill DeMint. Um, Her name is Sherry Ma, and she works for Stanford. And she did a lot of research with the Golden State Warriors. And the first NBA championship they won, she changed the way they traveled. So instead of leaving on after a game, they'd go back to the hotel and get a sleep and get up the next day and travel. They didn't show up at 4 a.m. sleep deprived and miserable, you know, and going across time zones, really going across time zones and stuff like that. And so we found that naps are good. So a 20 to 30 minute nap during the day is wonderful. We don't want people to sleep longer than that because we don't want them getting into slow wave sleep, which is the restorative nature. But it takes more for the body to come out of it. You've got to have REM sleep because it's the processing of memories and ideals, and, and it's cognitively kind of the pruning that happens. But we want people to sleep, and people don't want to do it. They go back to their dorm rooms. Okay, so around four o'clock in the afternoon, they get tired. Two or three o'clock, and then they get a burst after they eat dinner, and then at 10 o'clock at night, they're jazzed up again. Well, they don't want to go to sleep, so they end up getting on video games or or putting a light on, or they fall asleep with their TV on. But that's not good sleep. So you have to have the discipline to get your sleep and to go through your process and proper sleep hygiene to improve.
1: How much do you think uh, social media nowadays helps or hurts performance? I mean, especially with our ability to access anything immediately, you have tools, but at the same time, it can be a detriment. How have you seen that experience and
0: affect athletes or students today? I think social media is, it's an aspect of an athlete's life that we can see, get some insight into who they are. So I think it's a brilliant from a marketing standpoint. I find it extremely detrimental though, because it puts a vulnerability up that people can get to them at any given moment. And I find too many athletes are too aware of the negative comments. Mm -hmm. So if you've ever had somebody who trolls you on Twitter, despite the fact that you know it's a troll and it's probably a bot or an alternative account, it still rings true. It is a social rejection and it hurts. We had a situation in the office a couple months ago, about a month ago, and we were, um, Emma, who runs the social media in here, put up a tweet about the transfer rate in college sports is very high. It's about 14% for males, 10% for women. And she had taken a long thing I'd written about and essentially had kind of qualified it, but at the very end, she, she did her job. She did a great job with it. But what happened was it said, you know, parents, what are we teaching our kids that the first thing we do is leave and blame coaches and whatever, okay? And the hatred that came my way. You're a doctor, you're a psychologist, and you are telling kids to stay in abusive situations. This is a racially motivated tweet. I got that one. Wow. This is, it was unbelievable what I got. And I said, I never said a kid shouldn't transfer. What I said was, parents, what are you doing if you're blaming the coach? What are you teaching them? People couldn't get that. Yeah. They brought their biases into what they saw and it was a completely benign statement. And most coaches hit me up on DM and were like, "Thank you for saying something." What I was saying is, listen, people transfer all the time. I'm not against transferring. Transfer if you got a better opportunity, you're not getting treated right. you've Got a bad coaching. But if if you transfer three times, it's always the coach's fault. Now come on, okay? Right. So what? I, but it hit me. It hurt because I ended up deleting the tweet. But I got read. I mean, I got attacked by a Washington Post uh, uh, journalist. Um, who had an agenda and sure. felt that I was a good one to attack for that? I got attacked by people in my field. Who, it was funny. I got attacked by people in the sports psychology field who aren't clinicians, questioning my clinical skill sets. <laughs> and I was like, "But you don't. You're not. You're not clinical at all. You have no clinical yeah. training at all. And yet you're coming after me. And first of all, you didn't even read the damn tweet. Yeah. And I DM'd them. They wouldn't DM me, DM me back. And so then. I went and met with a player and a player was like, I'm off of Twitter now. And I said, what happened? He goes, oh, I'm getting just blasted. And I was like, I get it. I completely get it. So I tell all my professional athletes, hire somebody to manage your social media. Get it off your phone. Okay. Do not look at it. If you want to see positive things, have them send them to you in screenshots. But don't look at it. Yeah. And do not get into Twitter wars with people. And I would say that the you know the people that we've seen recently who've done a really good job with it, like Phil Mickelson or Tom Brady, they're posting it and they're not even it's not on their phone. They may jump on it on occasion, but there's social media experts who know how to answer uh, you know quips and stuff like that very quickly that make it sound like it's coming from the right guy. Yeah. Phil Mickelson's most recent tweets have been oh they're brilliant. Now he may be playing with it for a little while. Yeah. He'll get off of it eventually because what eventually gets to a point where you can't handle it. Yeah. Hitting bombs. Yeah, hitting bombs. Hitting the bombs. best one is some guy asked him, he said, the one I saw this week was, hey, Phil, I'd like you to be on my member guest partner. Are you playing? He goes, well, if it's on a weekend, I'm probably free. <laughs> and I thought that was I thought that was well done. But there people aren't – but then if you watch the comments, the comments just get brutal. Yeah. And we put up a post of a podcast we did with Mike Bianco, who's the baseball coach at Ole Miss, who I played for. I love Mike. He's the longest tenured among the power three coaches. And we titled the thing, How to Build a Perennial Contender. And people are like perennial contender, my ass. He misses Omaha every year. I'm like, but he's okay. Yeah, you go back, and and I love le- reading Clay Travis. Yeah, okay, because Clay just goes at people and says, "Yeah, you're the guy posting with an avatar of a of you with a guy's jersey on." Yeah. Okay, you go back to work. Yeah,
1: he, he's he's relentless, Ruth. He's relentless. And I love it. it. I love yeah. it. Do you have a daily routine? Uh, you mentioned in the morning, you go spend some time for yourself, 20, 30 minutes in reading. Do you have any other sort of routine throughout the days or not really?
0: No, I mean, I, my day usually starts, my first client's usually at 8 a.m. Um, I like to get up. I like to go eat breakfast somewhere. Uh, I'm not an eat breakfast at the house person because that means I just got work to do. I'd rather get in here and do and have that time because once I start with clients, I can't tap into the world. Yeah, um, You're probably the same way. You're just removed except for that bubble you're in. Yep. And so I like to have that time to get ready to push. And so I'd like to say I get up in the morning and exercise or go for long walks. Uh, you know, I don't. My, my more weekend routine is I like to play golf on Saturday morning. That's my time, my friends. Um, I like to get away for that. I, you know, I love to hang out with my family and stuff like that. Uh, right. You know, I don't travel and go to sporting events, so. Yeah.
1: Speaking of family, we didn't get a chance to touch on that initially, but you met your wife at LSU, is that correct? Yep. And you have yep. two daughters?
0: Two daughters, 18 and 22. Uh, youngest one is a freshman at Auburn, and oldest one is a graduate of Auburn is doing a master's in digital media marketing at Alabama. So that's awesome. Yeah, so we're empty nesting for the first time. In fact, that's why I was looking at my phone. The youngest one just texted that she has nothing going on, so she's coming home this weekend because she misses us. That's great. So it's like, okay. My wife's like, do you that's think amazing. she's okay? I'm like, yeah, she just wants to come home. She's all good. She misses home too. Yeah, she misses home too. How'd you meet your wife? You know, um, funny story. So her cousin was a friend of our program, was very close with our coach's family and was always around and went out one night and went to our local dive bar and met her. And she had just ended a relationship and we met. She knew nothing about sports. First time we ever, you know, she was like, I went to a baseball game It went into double overtime. And I was like, okay, I like this. And you know, she became a great baseball girlfriend uh, for three years. What I really wanted in a spouse was somebody who was driven. She was a really good student. She liked to have a good time. She liked to, you know, she wasn't like, she just wanted to stay away from everything. She enjoyed doing things, but she, she went to nursing school because her mom was a nurse. She didn't want to go to med school. She had to wait a year and a half to get in nursing school because of the waiting list. And I kept saying, why don't you go to med school? You know, you'll get in sooner. I mean, her grades are good. She had all the prerequisites. And she said, nah, she goes, I want to walk away from my career and raise kids. And I, I can't do that if I go to med school. Hmm. And so she always knew what she wanted. Yeah. And I respected that. And, she was a damn good nurse. She um, worked at a labor and delivery hospital in Baton Rouge. That was a high volume labor and delivery, 800 births a month type of thing. Yeah, And it was a physician owned hospital. Now it's a teaching hospital because of some merging. But when we moved to Providence, she was 28 and she was a non-union nurse. So a little bit of issue. Well, the hospital was a sister hospital and called and said, would she be interested in being a manager? So she was a nurse manager at 28. Wow. You know, being a nurse is hard. She liked the chaos of delivery. And in labor and delivery, the nurses are doing a lot of exams, waiting on the, the delivery team to come over. So there's a lot of that autonomy. And um, she really did well with that. And then we moved to Philadelphia. She ended up working for Merck doing research. And then we moved down here. She decided that she didn't want to be a nurse anymore. Yeah. And so I always tease her. She just let her license lapse. And she's like, that way I can never go back into nursing. <laughs> but her thing is, it's yeah. such a hard job. It's such, yeah. a, it's such a thankless job. It is. But it paid our way through school. And she would do whatever it took and however to do it. And she never complained. And I remember my dad got her a job when she was pregnant with Logan. She was a first year nursing student and he called a nurse manager friend of his and said, my daughter-in-law needs to toughen up and be ready. And she was seven months pregnant, but she was the nurse aide on a med surge unit in inner city, Baton Rouge. And you know, cleaning patients and turning them over. And she's like, that got me over any fear of anything I'd ever see in my life. Wow. You know, she said, I'm cleaning stuff. And, you know, she'd come home and her clothes would stay outside and she'd bathe down. And and so she just quickly realized what it took to do it. Yeah. And um, she was good at what she did. She would have made a hell of a physician, except for the fact that she wanted to walk away. Yeah. yeah. And I respect that. She knew going in. She's like, I, I knew I could have done it. I knew it would have been great, but I just can't do it. No. Yep. What is one of your
1: favorite books? I know in prior... Interviews, you'd mentioned Unbroken. Is that up there or do you have other books
0: that you like? Yeah, Unbroken's one of my favorites. Lauren Hillebrand's a brilliant writer. Interesting story about that. She has chronic fatigue syndrome, so she never met Louis Zamperini, who's the subject of the book. Yeah. They did it remotely. Uh, she had written Seabiscuit. Um, okay, yep. And she really captured the essence of the psychological story of Louis Zamperini. Oh, yeah. Don't watch the movie. The movie was a good attempt, but the book is just incredible. Phenomenal, yeah. I love I love military-based books. that holds my attention. Obviously I love Lone Survivor about Marcus Luttrell. The the mindset of the Navy SEALs to me is fascinating. I have a friend of mine who's a SEAL Team Four guy and I'm so fascinated by what he has gone through and what he talks about and how he goes about doing it. And he's not a very big rah-rah guy, he's just very understated. The book Fly Boys I read was incredible. Anything that Ryan Holiday writes, no, I'm all stuff. in. Um, yeah. He I was emailing one thing yesterday, his new book Stillness is Stillness is here. Something yeah. is his new book is coming out yeah. and I'm just a massive fan of Ryan's. Yeah, it's, it's short, easy stuff. books. His book perennial seller, I think is probably the best book he's ever written mm-hmm. about how to make something a perennial seller from a marketing standpoint. Interesting. But obstacle is the yet. way and ego of the enemy. Yeah. Brilliant. I love, let me see if looking over there, you know, I think I don't read a lot of sports psych books. I don't read a lot of business how to books. Yeah. Um, most of the time you can read through those books and get them done pretty quickly. And I'm not saying that in a, cocky way but more along the way of i just i want to learn from somebody's story yeah so
1: those are all great off the chick is that um i recently read uh the trillion dollar coach oh yeah Uh, that's one i wanted to pick up great book yeah same sort of thing you know guys not initially trained to be you know this this coach but and i mean that in a way of of he didn't set out to be a high performance coaches of ceos he's a he's a football coach coach from Columbia and just his ability to work with people, communicate, yep. brings out the
0: best, which is very interesting. So yeah. 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 Trusted by Silicon Valley at the highest level.
1: Oh yeah. All the top guys. Yeah. I read somewhere too that your favorite food is a hot roast beef po'
0: boy. Oh yeah. Absolutely. From, I don't, so I'm not from the South originally, uh, Yeah, well, you can't what, get it here in Birmingham. What is that? So you can get it at Cajun restaurants around here, but hot beef. So in South Louisiana, hot roast beef po' boy is, so you got the French bread, right? And yep. so everybody wants to do it with fried seafood, which is fine. I mean, but a hot roast beef po' boy is, I want to say it's like shredded roast beef. Sometimes it's sliced, but it's just like, it's not pot roast because I don't want the fat in there, but it's just the gravy and, and all that. I mean, if you go to New Orleans and you get a hot roast beef po' boy, it's the best thing you'll eat. Yeah. Where where do you go to get uh, it? In New Orleans, any, any po' boy shop. Gotcha. I mean, it, it, you know, if you, to me, if I'm going to go down to New Orleans we go every year for Mardi Gras. I'm going to eat it at Mr. B's and get barbecued shrimp. Okay. Uh, big old pot you got to put the thing on. And it's not barbecue like our listeners think, like they're putting it on a grill. Barbecue is because of the sauce it sits in. looks like barbecue sauce. It's full of butter and Worcestershire. Yeah. And you peel them and eat them, and then you dip the French bread in it. And it's just yeah. it's mind-knowingly good. Um, a good roast beef po' boy is any, if you go to Louisiana, any po' boy stand is going to have a great po' boy. And if it's made with love, you're going to see it. Yeah, it may not pass health board, but it's going to be good. <laughs> you know, there, there are places. There's one place in Birmingham that has them called Cajun Boys, and they bring the bread up from Louisiana. That's the thing. The French bread has to be a day old. Okay, so good French bread has to be a day old to be a little stale, and so most people won't bring it up or make it. And then after it's a couple of days old, you make bread pudding out of it. That's kind of the thing that they do with it. So the problem with it is, is, if it's if it's gets stale on you, they don't know what to do with it. Yeah, so they don't they don't really make it. Gotcha. But good French bread should kind of flake off. I don't like French bread that you have to pull on, uh, but I want it to be good enough to, yeah. that you're gonna devour well, it. Next time we're so, down there, I'm there, yeah, and out. and and you know, roast beef po'boys. I mean, look, catfish po'boys. You know, you got to understand the history of a po'boy though. If you think of the word, it was they would just stuff meat in a piece of bread for the po'boys, okay? Because it was cheap. Yeah. So Louisiana has always been an underperforming state, um, and so jambalaya and gumbo are just you throw everything in a pot and you cook it because it's your leftovers. Okay. And so. Uh, a great roast beef po' boy is big. It's messy. It's your hands are dripping, but it's just excellent. Yeah. So the, I will. That is on the list. The next time. We yeah. No. 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 If you go to New Orleans, you got you, you'll always eat well. The problem with New Orleans is you really can't eat that food outside of it. There's really no other cuisine in America that's like that. Yeah. You know, I can eat good sushi in Vancouver or Seattle. I can also eat it in Birmingham. Yeah. Maybe a little different. I can eat a great steakhouse. I don't have to be in Chicago or Kansas City or New York. You can't quite get good Cajun food no. outside of New Orleans. A little bit on the coast, yeah, um, and it's special to that area. It's probably like how they make sourdough in San Francisco. Yeah, there's something with the pots that they do it—the cast iron pot cooking that they do in South Louisiana and the different factors that go with it. Yeah, that's amazing.
1: Couple last uh, quick yeah. ones here. So, if this career path, what you're doing here today, were not available to you, what else would you do? What would be your sanctuary?
0: Uh, that's a good question. I, you know. I'd probably be somewhere in the business world, you know. I'd probably be in sales or something like that. Yeah. Um, I like people. I mean, even though I was somewhat shy, I was I learned to overcome it, and um, I like being around people. I like doing things. That, you know, I'd probably if I had to go back, the the one decision point that I had in my career was I remember when I was done playing baseball, I uh, I thought a lot about going into coaching, and I remember talking to my wife, who was my fiance at the time, and I said, you know, if I go into coaching, it's gonna be six to 10 years of moving around making no money. And I don't know if I want to do that. And I remember when I finished my training, I looked back and I was did the exact same damn thing. <laughs> and I didn't want to move around. I wanted to stay in Baton Rouge. I'd moved around my entire life. I didn't want to leave Baton Rouge. Yeah. The greatest thing ever happened was I left Baton Rouge, but I, I maybe would have been a baseball coach. This job allows me to stay in the game. Yeah. It allows me to be a part of the game. I haven't done a lot with baseball. Uh, that's going to change. I'm going to get much more involved in baseball, with some things I've got going on, but I would probably be dragging fields and water and pitching mounds and yeah and uh, never dipped. So I wouldn't be chewing on a dip or a chaw, but I probably would be hitting fungos. Yeah. yeah, That sounds like a
1: good, uh, good deal. Yeah, it's
0: a good gig. What's your handicap on the golf course? Uh, it'll go between two and four. Ooh. So um, I think probably right now it's hovering just under three. I like that. That's awesome. Yeah. I enjoy playing. Yeah, so I'm, I'm talking about Bedside Manor.
1: It's, it's actually a class. As you go into medical school, they teach you how to interact with patients. And I, I think there's certain aspects that you, you definitely need to learn and that you can learn. And then I think there are certain people like a Dr. Andrews, that's just who they are. Their ability to relate and communicate to someone is above and beyond most people's. And I think that you can pick things up from watching people like that and interacting with them and, and, Exposing yourself to those people, I can remember when I was a medical student. I, I distinctly remember shadowing a surgeon in, in Vale, Colorado, named Peter Millet, and was just impressed at how well he communicated with patients to explain things, to answer their questions, to almost predict what they're thinking because of his experience. And not everyone, every doctor is like that. Not every surgeons like that. Not every primary physicians like that. So I think that there is, there's there's a, a skill to work towards so that not only Do you garner and continue to develop the trust that patients automatically give you? Because it's almost a given when they walk in and start telling you just about everything that's happened to them. Um, But I think being able to allow them to trust in you to not only just be competent in understanding what their problem is and trying to fix it, but also working them through that, answering their questions, putting their sort of worries and stresses at ease to the extent that you can in that circumstance and really walking them through the entire process and to a point that you said before saying, yeah, we got you. We're with you through this process. And I'm not just, I'll see you tell you what happened, fix it and send you on your way. Yeah. And that I think for me is what I've seen for the really good docs. They're able to do all of that together. And the patients walk out saying, you know, seeing this experience in a much more optimistic
0: light. I think the thing that people have to remember in bedside manner too, is for the vast majority of us, minus well, for the vast majority of doctors visits, there's an anxiety that people have when they walk in. You know, I shake everybody's hand when they come in. You can always feel the sweat in their hands. Even to come see me. Yeah. I'm like, dude, I got a putting green. Like, we're good. <laughs> like, I'm not going to do anything to you. Yeah. But they're still nervous, right? And I, I tell my wife that about when she schedules my days. I'm like, sometimes I need a break in the middle because everybody who walks in the room has anxiety. Everybody who leaves feels better. But as soon as they walk out the door, they feel better. I got the next one coming in. And if you look at a physician's office, you know, the joke about how long it takes to get in. You know, I had a 10 o'clock appointment. I got seen at 11 o'clock. You already got them on a clicker clock that they're working and they're getting more and more worked up and nervous. Yeah. There's a reason why dental offices have, for the most part, soft music playing or they have fish tanks. Yeah, It's the bubbling sound that calms people down. They're already anxious. But the bedside manner of, there's a story that we learned in grad school, and I'm sure it's true, but it may seem true to us, is one of my professors used to train the med students at Virginia um, College Medical School, College Virginia College of Medicine, whatever it mm-hmm. is. And she'd get first or second year, I guess first year residents, and they'd go through their clinical assessments. And she would go through and they would come in and they would do the assessment. They'd watch through a window and then they'd come in and, and the the doctor would give this full assessment. And she said, I asked one of them one day, I said, can you tell me the patient's name and didn't know the name and flunked him. It's like, you've got somebody who's trusting you and you don't even know their name. That's horrendous because She said, what you have to understand is as a physician or a psychologist, you're trying to solve the puzzle in your head immediately. You're trying to see and predict, but you're forgetting that the person sitting there doesn't need it on a time stamp. They need the relationship. And one of the things that I learned very early on from a bedside manner is I remember I had a patient who had classic PTSD following being shot at work. And she came in, she had this clear, usually you don't see clear PTSD. It's usually pretty, it's got layers to it. This one was clear and she was a fast food manager and where the hospital was, I was in Baton Rouge it was a tough area and she got shot in a drop. And what happened was the PTSD was due to when she got shot, she hit the accelerator and she couldn't stop the car from hitting the the pole in front of her. So she not only saw the pole in slow motion, she thought the guy who shot her was going to come and kill her. She walked a mile and a half to get to the hospital and, and everything. And I remember I kept getting her closer and closer, and what you do is exposure therapy is You take them out in the public and you get them closer and closer to the scenario. And I got her across the street and we worked through it. And she never came back. She didn't come back for about six months. And I come in and I was so excited. And I remember talking to my professor and he was like, well, first of all, I've never had that opportunity to do that. What a brilliant opportunity. Yeah. And I was like, what do you mean? You're the professor. You should have done this multiple times. And he's like, well, you don't get them like that. And he goes, but you exposed her too fast. You overwhelmed her. And I thought, all right, so she came back. And I slowed it back down, and we and she ended up returning to work, but just not in fast food, whatever. And so then I had another patient who came in, and it was the same way of not listening from bedside manner. She came in and she was depressed, and I did the assessment and realized she has obsessive compulsive disorder, very rare. You don't see it in pure OCD. And I was like, okay, let me tell you why you're depressed. You're this, and I so I'm going to start exposing you to these things. And she was she never came back. And my professor, my mentor, was like, you screwed that up. She didn't come in because she had OCD. She came in because she was depressed. She wasn't sleeping. You got to listen to what they're telling you. Yeah. Learn to establish the rapport with people. They'll tell you a lot more. They're only going to tell you what they need you to know right now. Right now. Because that's where their most stress is. All right, so let's turn the, the mic on to you. Sure. All right, Doc, it's funny when I look at the field of orthopedic surgery. All right? It's a very esteemed field. But it's a field that, that to me has got a change coming. There's going to be a revolutionary shift in the field at some point. What do you see it doing? It's tough to say. I think a lot of people would jump to
1: the idea of biologics right now. Yeah. PRP, stem cells, amniotic stuff. And I would probably disagree to be honest with you. I think there's some benefit at this point yet. I think the biggest thing that we underestimate is physicians, scientists, is that the body's far smarter than we are at this point. And so the idea of taking out some stem cells from your hip and injecting them randomly and hoping that they do what you want them to do, that's a little bit audacious for us to believe that that's actually going to happen. I do, however, think that there's potential down that line as far as, you know, working with the bench side of, of that, as far as beyond just clinicians, sort of scientists, uh, working with scientists who are actually working on the ground with, you know, cellular development, cellular biology. Um, and moving forward from that standpoint to be able to produce interesting things like scaffolds to where we can then implant those cells. But even with that, I think we're still a long way off before we're able to, you know, reconstruct cartilage the way it needs to be reconstructed at the very cellular level. Beyond that, I, I think that orthopedics in general, we're very simple, right? It's broken, yeah. fix it. So I think for me, my hope is that orthopedics and what I'm actually trying to do with the way that I practice is take a much more comprehensive approach um, in the sense that, Yes, I can fix your ACL, which again goes back to why I really enjoyed your conversation with us initially. But if I can fix it, but you're still having issues from a mental standpoint, from a nutrition standpoint, from an interpersonal relationship standpoint, I have not really achieved my goal. I fixed something, but I haven't gotten you to do what you want. And my whole view on the way that I do my job is that I want to restore function and your ability to do what you want. And if we haven't gotten there, I feel like I've failed. And so my hope is that as orthopedic surgeons... Um, that we can be a little bit better of just focusing on the engineering, it's broke, fix it, and really focus on making sure that we can fix the whole circumstance and allow people to get back to their full function in all aspects of that injury-related illness. Perfect. Closing up, how can people find you on social media? So, that, you know, we can, anything that we're going to list here on the show notes and
0: whatnot in the future can find you. Yeah, if you go to brettmccabe.com, it's B-H-R-E-T-T-M-C-C-A-B-E. Uh, Dot com and then social media is Dr. Brett McCabe for all those. As awesome. somebody said one day, and during that thing is, are you that low of self-esteem you have to put doctor in front of your name? I'm like, yeah, that's
1: exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, Any last words or of wisdom for either athletes, coaches, prospective people who can, considering psychology as a career, or just the general
0: audience? I think the first thing we have to understand is anybody listening to this, regardless of whatever you do, life is more about struggle than it is about calm. It's how we find the calm through the struggle that matters. One of my old roommates is a trauma orthopedic surgeon in Baton Rouge, and uh, now he's a politician. I don't know, know. but um, public service commissioner for the state of Louisiana, Craig Green. But um, God bless, I don't know why he does this stuff, but (laughs) he he shared with me something that I thought was brilliant that I've always held onto is I asked him, I said, how do you maintain your sense? And he said, an executive coach told him one day, he said, every day when you go to work, identify a tree. And he said, there's a tree on my way to work that has a ribbon on it. And when I pass that, I become Dr. Green. And when I come home, I'm Craig, I'm dad. And he said, that brought peace to me because when I'm Dr. Green, I have responsibilities. And sometimes my family has to take a, I'm never gonna put them at the back burner, but sometimes I have to take care of a patient before I answer the phone call from my wife. But when I'm at home, unless I'm on call, I don't have to answer that call right away. I need to answer the call to my parents, my kids, and I have to be a dad. And I think that was such a great peace of mind for me to hear that because I'm on 24 hours a day. My players can call me. I look at my phone as we're talking. I've got four messages from players it's challenge it's what we do but when your kids are with you the struggle is normal but how you present to people how you're working through the struggle is going to give more peace of mind to your kids than anything else and i think the way we find that peace in our life helps so that's
1: amazing i can't thank you enough for giving us the time obviously we've been here for almost three hours now and this was phenomenal i learned a lot and again like i said from the from the time i first met you over at andrew sports medicine during your talk i knew that uh You are a special personality, and so I'm glad we got the chance to talk again, so thank you. Well, thanks for having me. It's fun. Absolutely. Thank you. As the final seconds tick off today's podcast, we here at the Victory Over Injury Podcast and the Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center would like to sincerely thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to a deeper dive into the world of sports medicine. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. Until next time, be well and take care. Goodbye.
2: On the next episode of the Victory Over Injury Podcast.
1: Today's guest stands in a league all her own. Eventually landing as one of the greatest athletes to ever compete in the sport of triathlon. Professional triathlete Leanda Cave.
3: But with Ironman, I mean you're essentially having breakfast, lunch and dinner while you're racing. The crash was pretty bad. I was actually at full race speed, 23, 24 miles an hour. First professional race I did as a triathlete, I think I won like two and a half thousand dollars. The psychology of an injury for an athlete is we're in denial, you know. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait a
1: second. You had not run a marathon or that distance and hadn't even ridden past 60 miles and your, no. your first Your first approach was the World Championships?
3: I was kind of in a place where I wasn't able to ride anymore. Yeah. And yeah, it was like pretty devastating actually. And the draft actually saves you, I mean, in a headwind, 30,
1: 40%. What, what happened with that crash in Kona?
3: I just uh, was too relaxed. Oh, there's also this Ironman distance, which was also on TV, and I realized that that's also a really big deal. And I thought I was always going to be in pain. Yeah. I remember, like, even now, like, just thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm not in pain anymore.
2: Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center has built a worldwide reputation for excellence in sports medicine and orthopedic patient care, research, education, and prevention. We couldn't have done it without our dedicated physicians and staff and the hundreds of thousands of patients who have trusted in our team to aggressively pursue victory over injury. Our practice works as a team to deliver multidisciplinary sports medicine and orthopedic care, a concept pioneered by our co-founder, Dr. James Andrews. This is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.